Hello. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh man. Wow. Hello. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even think I could do an impression of what you said, how you sounded. Oh, I mean, man, are you okay? Are you doing okay? Take two. You there? I'm here. Are okay. you there? <laughs> I'm here. Jesus. The hell. <laughs> I, like, I, I thought maybe that it hadn't gotten a contact request in or something, and maybe that was what was holding it up, or it was just Skype, and it was just Skype being Skype. Skype it, was. Yeah, it's just Skype doing what it normally does, being annoying. Yeah. I'm recording. Alright, so... Hold on. I'm just swallow my water. Um... Okay, I'm gonna... I'm gonna drop a, like, a good five to ten seconds of silence in here, and that way I can find the beginning of the tag, and I will come in with all of my, um, my pre-stuff, and I will introduce you. Pop culture affidavit. Yeah, pop culture affidavit episode. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yeah, yeah, all right. Pop culture affidavit episode one oh one. Retrospecticus. Ah, the reward for a year's worth of toil and sacrifice. Retrospecticus. Oh. 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 Oleum covers were worth the extra money. Oh, you can smell the benzene. Oh, when the kids see these layouts and fonts, you're going to be the most popular girl in school. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, we are on the other side of the milestone 100th episode, and I hope you enjoyed my rather straightforward look at Megaforce. This episode has come out a little later than I intended because I have since gone back to work and I am a few weeks into the school year, which means that I have been pretty much slammed with things to do. I also have been working on the final episodes of In Country, which means that I decided to take time out from this podcast and therefore this episode got put off. But I did want to get this one in before my Baltimore Comic Con coverage because that is taking place in October this year. And after that, the holidays are going to roll around. So, you know, I have some things scheduled. I have some pretty cool ideas for the next few months. All right, they're cool in my mind. But, you know, I've got some stuff planned, really. Anyway, for this episode, I wanted to do what I suppose I could have done with episode 100. And that means this is going to be a bit of a hodgepodge of an episode. 
I've got some outtakes and never-before-released material featuring some guests that have been on the show before. I have some feedback via emails and blog comments that go all the way back to the very beginnings of the Pop Culture Affidavit blog. And I have an announcement about a new quarterly miniseries that is going to start in the beginning of November and go all the way to the end of December 2021. This isn't exactly a clip show, because I'm not going through old episodes, but I decided I wanted to do a whole look at what I've been doing in this podcast for the past 100 plus episodes now, as well as the blog that I started all the way back in 2010. I mean, I know we're hitting a, we're a few months short of a decade of doing this, but... Hitting episode 100 as well as all of the cleaning out that I've been um, writing about over on the Uncollecting has made me think about all of this talking into a microphone and pecking away on a keyboard. And Well, I thought I'd do the origin story, if you will. On some level, this blog and podcast begins with my having listened to a lot of episodes of Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box back when I was more or less snowed in during the winter of 2009-2010. And I worked my way through his entire lead-up to his own episode 100 while shoveling my driveway for hours on end when we were digging out from two monster snowstorms that dumped about three feet of snow on us. But on another level, this begins in high school and college when I was a student newspaper columnist. And uh, I'm going to take the self-deprecating track here and tell you that it actually wasn't that much of an honor to be a student newspaper columnist back in my high school and college because I gave those columns to myself by virtue of the fact that I was an editor. So it was, I guess, an exercise in egomania and self-importance when honestly... If I'm being real, it was an exercise in, hey, we need to fill space each issue. Why don't I write something to fill said space, even if it's terrible? Oh, and I wanted to express myself for something. But the point was, I was just trying to kill some space and give myself an assignment. So there you go. And I have honestly no idea if anybody read my high school newspaper or the column in the high school newspaper. And I know I know it got distributed to like classes and people read it but you know every once in a while maybe somebody would comment on it but really I just kind of put it out there and hope somebody might read it in college the column was something I actually became a little bit known for I was also the editor-in-chief of the paper starting as my in my sophomore year and since I began writing the column in my spring of my freshman year and I didn't miss a deadline for the entirety of the rest of college I had three and a half years worth of uh, stuff out there as as I went through it and I've told this story on, on collecting uh, already. It was in a blog post, but this was the, the column was called "From the Nosebleeds," which was a term from or used the term for the cheap seats in a stadium. And it began in the sports section as a way to fill half a page every week. And when I became editor in chief, I moved it to our feature section because I was running out of issues or topics or ideas regarding sports. I was kind of a mediocre sports editor or sports writer anyway. Um, it wasn't something I was interested in, in doing or being. I wanted to work for the news staff, and uh, the sports editorship was open, so they gave it to me because the editors wanted me on the editorial staff. And then they gave me the, the position of editor-in-chief. So they, they saw something in me that you know I didn't know I had. Anyway... Getting back to writing that column, it was a regular thing, and it was definitely an opportunity for me to cut my teeth on something. And while I tended to focus on fiction writing in classes, 
I discovered that my knack was for writing nonfiction, specifically personal essays or commentary on the mundane, sometimes the cultural. From the nosebleeds was really became about whatever I wanted it to be about, and that often meant observations about college life or the popular culture of the day. I remember once that after I wrote an op-ed, it wasn't in the column, it was actually on the opinion page, um, that was a slam against somebody's op-ed from the previous week, and in retrospect, I was kind of a dick in the column anyway. I got a letter that was all about how terrible I was on, and how all I wrote was inane crap. Now, there was nobody, I don't know who wrote the letter, because there was a, a fake name attached to it, because trust me, like we were like, let's find out if there's a person with this name at the, um, at the school, because you know, we usually ran any letter we got, but it was a fake name. And then I wrote a name crap. And then I was told, um, in the letter that Mr. High Horse editor won't run this because of what I say about him. So, but we didn't run the letter because I was like, well, you know, you didn't use the real name anyway, 99, I graduate, I moved to Arlington and, uh, I was lost for a little while. Um, if I'm being completely honest, and now Amanda and I kind of touched upon this in episode 99. There was quite a bit left on the cutting room floor, and I almost tried to work it into this episode, but I really couldn't find kind of the opening for it without it keeping too much of it in or having it be too long. So it might be another topic for another show on another day. But we did talk about what it was like to be 22 and just out of college. This is what, 99, 2000. And... Um, the problem that I have and something I mentioned in our recording that I think didn't get put in was that I had a long time of really not knowing what to do with myself or having no idea what creative outlet I had. You know, I, I was trying to write fiction. I was like, oh, I'm going to write novels. And, you know, it's, I had mixed results. I got a couple of pieces published in random little scene online magazines. I had no idea what a blog was yet. I think they actually existed by that point. But I, I, I didn't know where to go or what to do. And it wasn't until I was just sitting in another mindless office job in October 20. 2001 and I had read an article I think it was in the Washington Post about like you know where you can get websites and domain names and I was like you know what I'm gonna create a website and just post things there and I took that insult from that letter that that person wrote to me and I called the website inane crap and as far as web design was concerned, it was very crude. It was very DIY. You know, I didn't have Squarespace. I didn't have Weebly. I didn't have WordPress or anything like that. Um, I signed up for this hosting company. I signed up for the site. I signed up with a different hosting company for the uh, domain, inanecrap.com. So there was this weird thing going on when you tried to directly link to an article. You know, so th that was screwed up. I was playing paying two services for two different things. Uh, the web design software was an old one from Adobe that was called PageMill. And uh, it was kind of like Dreamweaver before Adobe eventually bought Dreamweaver. The copy that I had was pirated, uh, and I think, I I don't know if it was pirated from my company or a previous company, but we were using it for some of the same basic HTML stuff on our own website, and this was the very early 2000s, and, a, and it was the post.com bust. I was at a telecom consulting company that was limping along. I eventually got laid off in 2003. I took that CD with the software on it with me. 
Uh, I also had a live journal by then. <laughs> Both of these no longer exist. Don't go looking for them. You may be able to find old inane crap things in the, uh, like the Wayback Machine. And I've posted here and there pieces from that site to Pop Culture Affidavit is kind of a flashback thing because it was something that was there. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to use this again. So, uh, but I did delete it in the mid-2000s. You know, I'm, the same thing with LiveJournal. I'm pretty sure the LiveJournal is no longer there. Uh, the LiveJournal still exists, I'm pretty sure, but but mine's gone. Inane Crap itself lasted until 2007. Um, I stopped posting in like around July, around the time Brett was born. And then kept the site up for about six months afterward until I archived everything and then deleted it mainly because I was paying for it so it's like well if I'm not going to do this and I've closed the door and, and closed the volume on this then why am I paying for it so I so I archived it and I took it all down and I have you know all the files and all the essays on uh, on my hard drive but yeah, for the next three years, I tried some other blocking ventures. I had a blog about teaching that I kept up in various forms until a couple of years ago. I also had a blogger-hosted journal that I believe I remember calling I'm Too Normal for This, where I was trying to do stuff about being a dad and being and in pop culture. Um, the, the, the only problem with that was that I was constantly hit with what was right. I didn't know what to write. I, it, was, it was just kind of like listless. It was just... It was a blog. It was just kind of like there was there was nothing to it. It was just me posting random things. I, I would have been better off just keeping my live journal at that point, you know, at the age of 30. Anyway, this does bring us to 2010, 2009, 2010. And I've just started listening to podcasts. I've discovered From Crisis to Crisis. And because of From Crisis to Crisis, I discover views from the long box. And I'm listening to Mike talk about comics. And I'm listening to Mike talk about his life and comics. And almost immediately, I have two thoughts. One, and I apologize for sounding completely egotistical here, but I listened to what he was doing and I said, I think I can do that. I, and I, my first thought of my podcast of a podcast was, you know what, maybe I'll go back through all the new Titans books of the 90s. But back then, I couldn't find the right time to record, edit, and post a podcast, so I decided to just create a blog, which is why so many of the early posts of Pop Culture Avid David were that series called My Life as a Teen Titan. And I decided that the blog was going to be about random things in popular culture and how I personally felt connected to them in some way. I had thought of calling it Pop Culture Confessional, but that was taken, and I don't remember by who, but I remember doing a search for it and somebody had taken it. And I think it was, and I think what even annoyed me more was that it was like a dead blog or something that was just sitting there. It's like, ah. So I went with uh, the title I have now, the subtitle, which is The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. Calling myself a dork actually comes from an inside joke that I had with a friend of mine from high school. Uh, Vanessa's no longer with us, but it's a nod to her because she. She once wrote me in this letter, and I think I put it in this uh, in my blog post about the Lisa Loeb song, Stay, I Missed You. Uh, she once wrote me a letter from when she was in college at the very beginning about how like everybody's around is kind of like weird in their own way. And she said it's kind of it's, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And that was kind of like what we call each other. We call each other dorks. And, and that was kind of like it was almost like a like a mantra of mine like you know that that old idea of um what i've seen uh somebody i follow on on instagram and twitter lisa jacob say like embracing your weird which is kind of an it almost sounds like an offshoot of finding your joy high shag um and i i, I like it 
so I was like, okay, well, this is the sworn testimony of a dork pop culture affidavit. The second thing why I was thought, by the way, when I was listening to Mike's podcast was that I could have sworn I knew this guy. And uh, I know that sometimes Mike and I will joke that we have the same childhood, but like so much of what he talked about seems so familiar to me. And Mike was one of the first guests I had on the show back when we talk about Savage Steve Holland. And I've always been grateful that, you know, we're friends and that we got along. I mean, almost immediately. It was just, I don't know, something clicked or, or something, or maybe it was just, maybe it was the back and forth on Facebook and, and things, but there was just something I'm really, really grateful for the fact that I consider Mike, Mike Bailey a good friend of mine. Which leads me to my first clip. Back in the summer of 2018, I did a miniseries called It Came From Syndication, which I'm still very proud of. Mike was on the episode about drama and science fiction shows, and we covered just about everything. It wasn't until afterward, by the way, that I realized that we'd forgotten the television version of The Untouchables. That's not what this clip is about, though. You see, when Mike and I record and we have a good amount of time on our hands, we have been known to talk for a long time before we actually get to the show we're supposed to be recording. Now, a lot of that is idle chit-chat and updates on how life is going, the type of stuff you might want to talk to a friend about when you're meeting for coffee or lunch or drinks or something. Sometimes we have conversations about that night's topic that do get put into the show, but other times there's a hidden gem. This conversation goes from cast members from how I got into college to cast members from summer school to an incredibly obscure show called Superforce. The conversation was from a ways back and came after we had recorded the main part of an episode, which one I can't remember to be here honest. And I like it because it serves as both a good example of the tangential conversations we'll have outside our main recording and a good segue into a quick look at Superforce itself. I, uh, before I let you go, I, I did think of you last night because I watched that uh, documentary, I Know That Voice. Uh, I have uh, I have that in my queue too in my so uh, on my list. I'm looking at one of the guys that they're interviewing, and I'm like, God, I know this guy. I know this guy. I know his face. It's not his voice. I know his face. And then I realized it's the guy from How I Got Into College that was selling memorabilia throughout the entire film. Oh, um, he played um. He's in summer school. Mm-hmm. He plays yes, Ekian. Yes, he was Ekian in summer school. So he's in the he's in the special because apparently he has segued into <laughs> doing uh, voiceover work. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to check that so, one out too. But I was just like the the first thing I thought of is how I got the college. <laughs> have a button. You know, I want the entire cast of summer school. To appear on NCIS. <laughs> I really want to see that now. And actually, come to think of it. Let me see something real quick here. Because there may be a, a summer school NCIS connection. Well, I, I don't remember if I told you or I just told my wife once. But Diane Franklin like favorited or retweeted a tweet of mine. And I felt like I, that was like the most awesome thing that happened to me that week. <laughs> Cause I follow her on Twitter. She is. Okay. So Patrick Labarto, mm-hmm. uh, who is the football player in summer school that kind of befriends the pregnant girl. Yes. Uh, he was also one of the ones that got shot by my, I love my dead gay son. Yeah. 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 And Heather's 
he was on JAG. Hmm. And um, NCIS spun out of JAG. Yeah. And he was on an episode of uh, of NCIS. Yeah, and so. Harmon's on there. Yeah, so I, I, I need... Well, I could do without um, Crazy Woman. Kirstie Alley. I could do without Kirstie Alley, but come on, everybody else. Courtney Thorne-Smith. Let's get Courtney Thorne-Smith. Let's get uh, Robin Thomas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. God, I would love Shawnee Smith. Shawnee Smith, um, uh, Chainsaw and Dave. I had such a crush on Shawnee Smith when I was a teenager. I really did. She was in. That's the reason why I watched Hot to Trot so many times. She was. Um... Uh, I got my John uh, John Candy films. Uh, Shawnee Smith was in Who's Harry Crumb. Oh, okay. Not a. Uh, not a uh... Hot to Trot. <laughs> not Hot to Trot. So. I have let everybody down. That's like, um, you've seen the great outdoors. Mm hmm. The girl in that Lucy Deakins, I think main is the lead in the boy who could fly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on the that, IMDb that, page... That'll be its own special sometime <laughs> on the IMDb page for summer school. People who liked this also liked one crazy summer. Better off dead. Just one of the guys. Ski school. Ski school. Ski school. Uh, back to school and summer rental. I am not seeing a bad film in no. this bunch. No. Even ski school, which is hilarious. <laughs> Let's just we'll add hard bodies to the mix. Just to... <laughs> that fucking movie. Oh my god! I totally forgot that that guy was in that. Do you remember Super Force? No. It was a syndicated series about a detective who it's basically Street Hawk. Okay. Where he's got like an outfit and a soup. It's the year 2020. <laughs> an astronaut becomes a vigilante. Oh, okay. Uh, when he learns that his cop brother has been murdered. Larry B. Scott was in it as well. Larry B. Scott uh, shows up in a lot of things. He was in the Karate Kid. Yeah, explain that to me. Uh, but the guy from summer school that basically slept through the entire—he <laughs> was in the bathroom. No, no, no. The the the, the Chippendales guy. Yeah, the Chippendales stripper. Guy. Okay, yeah, because he was constantly asleep. Yeah, he was the lead on Super Force. Okay, so that's uh, yeah, it's just. He's also on a couple episodes of Simon and Simon, but you know, I was on a couple of episodes of Simon and Simon. Simon so. and Simon were not brothers in real life, <laughs> just on television. <laughs> um, I I am going to going. I will say this though: I'm I'm about two or three episodes behind on From Crisis to Crisis, and lately, every time you guys do the the Daily Planet segment when you're talking movies, I'm sitting there going. Pretty sure I did an episode on that. I'm pretty sure I did an episode. <laughs> I've mentioned that. I've written about that. Like, because you talked about reality bites, and Jeffrey kept bringing up beautiful girls, and I'm like, did both of those movies? It is a year 2020, and the world has changed. 
Astronaut Zach Stone has returned from a two-year mission to Mars. Armed with a prototype spacesuit adapted for the streets, Stone is given the power to fight crime and establish order. In 2020, times are tough. This man's tougher. So I did watch the pilot episode. The pilot was a two-hour TV movie that aired around 1990. And as Mike mentioned, the main character in the show is played by Ken Oland, who played Larry, the male stripper, in the 1987 Mark Harmon movie, Summer School. Rob Kelly and, and David Ace Gutierrez, his ears just perked up. Um, I love that movie, too, guys. It's so great. Anyway, so Larry the Stripper, and then he plays Zach Stone. Zach Stone is a former astronaut, and this guy is a national hero because he successfully piloted a damaged space capsule back to Earth at the end of his mission to Mars. This is where we start. Just after he's hailed as a conquering hero, Zach finds out his brother, who is one of the better cops in the Metroplex, which is our fictional city where things take place, uh, although it's pretty much a back lot in Vancouver or whatever, was killed in the line of duty. Zach, therefore, decides to become a cop. However, this doesn't go very well as he goes into Metroplex's crime zone, uh, which is kind of like old Detroit in RoboCop. So, and then he goes into the zone a few times. He fails miserably as a cop. His captain, who's this like really beautiful blonde woman, and is giving him crap for it. And um, so he goes to uh, he goes to visit the kind of scientist who helped sponsor his trip and helped build all the tech and stuff for his trip and was a mentor to him, uh, who is now is found dead as well. And upon investigating things, he comes across F.X. Spinner, who is played by Larry B. Scott, who's Lamar in Revenge of the Nerds, right? And he's the tech nerd, you know, he's the guy who, he's the Q, right, basically. He was the one who helped uh, design the special spacesuit that Zack took to Mars. He's got another one, he hooks it up, they, it, it kind of fails on its first mission, and then they redesign the suit to make it street combat ready, and Zack gets this classic car out of storage and he is now super force right so he goes out and it's it's very robocop you know he 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 goes a he goes to clean up the crime zone and but there's also like big bad guys who killed his brother and we saw his brother's death at the beginning of the show before the whole space capsule thing was kind of the the cold open so zach finds out later though that his brother seems to be alive and he's one of the heavy muscle for the bad guys now and his brother basically we see him in that classic like early 90s suit or blazer with a shirt underneath of it and he's like all beefy he doesn't really have much of a neck but he has this majestic mullet thing going like action guy mullet thing going so anyway, uh, his brother is alive. He's the heavy muscle for the bad guys. He's fighting against Zack. Zack can't handle it. And the big bad corporate villain is played by everybody's favorite Watergate guy, G. Gordon Liddy. No, I'm not kidding. And G. Gordon Liddy is like, he's like, he's the Dick Jones, right? So, and, and we see him in flashbacks. He's totally the Dick Jones. But But in the five years, he's become like, zen master and he walks around in kimonos and he has this like kind of asian accent that i think is supposed to show the zen masterism but really is like almost like not not as racist as breakfast to tiffany's mickey rooney but like you know we're kind of headed in that direction plus 
<laughs> everything in the show takes place in 2020, funny enough. But and the weapons that everybody uses, like, they try to go for a futuristic look on the budget they have, but, like, you know, he's at one point, like, uh, the, the, the parade that he, they give him when he returns home, he's, like, sitting in the back of, like, it looks like a Chrysler LeBaron convertible or something from, like, 1989, 1990. Like, I swear I saw that in a car commercial on one of my old VHS tapes. And and I we are all led to believe that Fredericks of Hollywood and International Mail Catalog are the suppliers for the majority of clothing in 2020. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I watched this pilot. And I watched it all the way through on YouTube. And as cheesy as it is, and as ridiculous it is as it is, I realized, and I came to kind of like it, because it's a 90s indie comic on screen. The costumes, the dialogue, the way the women behave, the muscle men with mullets. I mean, it's all something out of a book by Valiant defiant Malibu image like these companies I mean and it's authentically so we're not talking about like the Spawn movie from 1997 or something we're talking about something that's like shot for shot of like women wearing impossibly tight clothing all the time fight scenes where everything seems fully extended an entire plot where the big bad is someone the writers swear they assume you know so that when their name is mentioned they show up and you're supposed to really care about this and you're like who the hell is this person i mean it's all there it's worth it just for that because if you sp- and i spent a decent amount of time recently reading indie indie comics from the 90s and as part of the uncollecting and like i'm watching this and i can see these really stiff drawings from like valiant books like and they're right in front of me on my screen and i'm like this is amazing it's what i didn't realize i wanted now, unfortunately, the show ran for like two years, but it was uh, it's there's only a couple of episodes on YouTube. Most of them, from what I could see, were taken from probably somebody's old VHS copy. But I do recommend seeking them out, and I'll try to put a link or, or embed a video or something in the show notes just so you can uh, so you can see it. That'll bring me that quick review will bring me to my first break. When I get back, I'll have some feedback and bring up another friend who's now a co-host with whom I've had fun podcasting over the last few years and who I also met through podcasting. Stick around. In 1939, Bob Kane and Bill Finger created a shadowy crime fighter steeped in the pulps and crime dramas of the time. That character was Batman. Over the next 80 years, Batman not only became one of the most popular comic book characters of all time, but also became a television and movie phenomenon, appearing in both live-action and animated projects. And then there are the plethora of video games, trading cards, action figures, and statues that have been made of him and his cast of characters. Because of this, Mike and I want to spend the next year celebrating his 80th birthday. And we're calling that celebration... The Overlooked Dark Knight Celebration of Batman's 80th Birthday. Yes. But really? Really? That That's the best name that you could come up with. You've written panels, dude, and that's the best thing you could come up with. It's accurate. Yeah, but, you know, you and I have been podcasting a long time now. That was the placeholder name. We can do better than that. Okay, what's your idea? 
well, what did we call it in the first episode of this series that we've already recorded? I, I really have no idea. It's a miracle that I remember what books we talked about. But that's fair, because I don't remember that either. Anyway, Andy and I are going to be spending May 2019 to May 2020 talking about Batman stories from all eras that we feel are either overlooked or too awesome not to talk about. We're even going to have special episodes dedicated to things like the 1989 Batman film and what issues of Detective Comics we would include in a big hardcover collection. Episodes will drop twice a month. You sure about that? To the best of my ability, episodes will drop twice a month at www.fortressofbailytude.com. You can also find the show on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. The Overlooked Dark Knight Celebration of Batman's 80th Birthday. Because everyone is doing it, but we're doing it for a whole year. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcasting Network. All right, reserve. So before I cover my next clip, I've got some pretty recent feedback. It's about episode 96, which was The Uncollecting. That was another recent show I was pretty proud of. I've done a decent job at keeping that blog going throughout the year, even if The Uncollecting ebbs and flows based on how many other things I've got going on in my life. This email is from Jack Bond, and the subject is Notes from My Uncollection. He says... I was thinking of your podcast while cleaning out the garage this weekend. I may have thrown out more pieces parts that could, quote, come in handy one someday than most years. The box by the curb has been picked through the before garbage collection, and that and does that count as donating? I think it does, Jack. You ever do that? You put out, like, the I put out, like, an old grill once. I put my kid's sandbox out to the curb before we moved it. I was like, take it, it's free. I had the sand and like buckets from Lowe's and people like took it. The grill was gone, you know? It's it's almost like people drive around neighborhoods sometimes, like, where's the free stuff? Hey, if it goes to a good home, I'm all and it's not in mine, that's cool. Anyway, back into Jack's email. While carrying the box out, I remembered spring cleaning as a child and how searching drawers and closets for stuff to throw out put me in mind of cartoons and adventure films where any time the characters would ride a balloon, they would come to a time of desperately throwing items overboard to lighten the ship. I offer that visualization if anybody finds it motivational, and he said, We will ignore that I later found out that dirigibles are desperate to gain ballast to replace the fuel and food they use so they don't have to vent precious helium. The Hindenburg had a downspout system to collect rain and even dew from the envelope. Using mostly hydrogen gave it the advantage that they wouldn't just vent it, but it would burn it in a special engine producing power and water, which they would condense out of the exhaust. 
these facts have been sitting in my head for unused for years. Donating them to you hasn't gotten them out of my head, but at least I can say that they've been used. Yes, thank you, thank you, Jack. Um, I hope I I hope I read that well enough for everybody to understand what he was talking about. So anyway, um, some hoarding humor. You may call this a defense mechanism. He says, I say it's just jokes. You've no doubt seen a collector post a photo online of the comment saying, my nightmare is that when I die, my wife will sell it for what I told her I paid for it. A book reading forum. I'm on talks so much about the to be read pile that we shorten it to the initials. If you don't keep up with it, you move the TBR to pile to the SBR or strategic book reserve storage of books with a spare set of glasses to keep ready for the twilight zone time enough at last scenario. Yeah. One model builder accurately also shown known as a model kit collector on a forum pointed out that in addition to the number of kits in our stash, we should consider the number of our, of our stashes as one gathers kits faster than they can be built. They are first stashed on under and around the workbench as that area becomes too crowded to work in, kits are moved to some other part of the house as deep stash, the accessible kits being considered main stash to preserve the illusion that this is the majority of the kits. There can ever be deeper stashes depending on ingenuity, and there are the varieties, the remote stash, the off-site stash, it might be a rented storage during a move, or the ancestral stash your parents haven't sent on to you or thrown out, a mobile stash accumulating in the car until there is a convenient time to move it to the house, office stash good for emergency cleaning, clearing of the car stash, also convenient if you can receive mail order there. I hear stash, I think of, I have two images. One is the scene in Christmas Vacation where Chevy Chase finds it has his hiding spot for the presents and he reaches into it and he finds one and he pulls it out. It says like Happy Mother's Day 1983 on it. Uh, the other, you keep saying this stash, this stash, this stash, and I, my mind immediately goes to the drugs. So I don't know whether or not... Um, not the stash of pot or the stash of model uh, model kits is what's worth more on the aftermarket though so somebody will have to tell me I do love hearing stuff like this partially because it tells me I'm not the only person out there doing this but also because it's kind of nice to have someone who can relate to the feeling of what am I going to do with all this crap I love this concept um, I mean I'm a different stash person I had a few when I was a kid I had like a space shuttle model I put together once, but I just never really truly got into the hobby. But I understand where you're coming from. It's it, For me, it's a location where all these things are just are. Trying to avoid the whole storage bin solution, like the rented storage locker solution, though, because that's why I'm doing this now, so that we don't run out of space. And I'm not the only one. My wife is also like, you know, we're trying to, you know, just maximize the amount of space we use anyway. And by the way, I've been keeping up with Alex Archibald's... Um, curiosity incorporated videos on youtube on a pretty regular basis uh there are times where he buys stashes of things and i wonder where he fits all of it and where he gets the money he thinks about my age as well so he must be really good at running this business because he's been able to keep uh getting new merchandise he's even in the process as i record this of moving from one store to another I'm not into collecting the stuff he usually picks up, but I totally would visit and buy something from this place if I ever was in the Edmonton area, and I 
the chances of me driving to Edmonton right now are like really, really slim to none. I don't know. Who knows? One day I'll be in Edmonton, and if if the store is still there, I will definitely stop in and and you know say and just be that dork fanboy of like I've been watching your show for a while. So, but I will say that watching that show sometimes sates my appetite for buying more stuff. So there you go. But on to my next clip from someone who likes to think she's keeping me accountable for my whole uncollecting venture, maybe because every time I mention something I want to buy, she will ask if it's within the parameters of my mandate. She's also another friend I've made through podcasting whose proximity has made us good friends in real life. Stella and I met in a way because of Mike Bailey. I'd heard her on his show, and I began listening to Batgirl the Oracle, and at one point he did mention that she lived in Charlottesville. Uh, I know that before I had her on my show and vice versa, we were on a panel show about Robin via the Batman universe. But for the most part, we've gotten together on a fairly regular basis to get coffee, lunch, dinner, especially during the summer when we've got a lot of downtime. And as you may know, we have our own podcast, which is Required Reading with Tom and Stella, and you can find it over on the TTF feed and at requiredreadingwithtomandstella.com. But we've had more than a few conversations off topic, but on recordings, and uh, we have had more than a few conversations that I clipped. And when I was going through our outtakes, I found two that were worth broadcasting. One was about Max Brooks's novel, World War Z, which we recorded live at Starbucks a couple of years ago. I decided to hold on to that one because I'm thinking of using World War Z as a pick for required reading at some point. But the other was about the movie Alien Covenant. Uh, This was recorded not too long after the movie came out. I've been a fan of the Alien franchise since the late 1980s. I first saw the, actually saw Aliens before I saw Alien, um, and uh, once did a blog post way back in the early days of Pop Culture Affidavit about the first three Dark Horse Aliens comics, because those were really important to me when I started collecting for real in the early 1990s. And while I've never seen any of the AVP movies, I've seen almost all of the others, and I have enjoyed them for the most part. Uh, Alien Resurrection was not my favorite. And I didn't really like that very much. But the other ones, I you know, I really do enjoy. It's been a while since I watched Covenant. I might have to get the Blu-ray so I can do a full watch-through of all of the films, or at least the ones I want to see. But for now, here was what we had to say as far as our reactions are concerned about the film upon its release. You've all sacrificed so much to be here and be a part of this thing we're doing. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work. Your courage. We're making history here. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. What happened here?
Alice, we are calm down. Tell me to calm down. You're breaking up. All of this is to start our new life. Where is it? I thought the movie was good. Yeah, I really liked it too. I mean, Ferris is a pretty terrible person. Yeah. I mean, she just wants to get out. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. No, I like it. I think there are lots of questions. I didn't really know how David goes from, you know, mosquitoes to ginormous eggs but i guess that's that's how it all worked out oh, poor elizabeth shaw yeah 10 i guess 10 years of yeah of it and essentially going hal 9000 did you think that um it was walter or david at the end i knew that was david yeah i was oh, thinking from the second he stepped on the ship i was like that's david that that actually was too predictable <laughs> Like, Do you think Walter's still alive? Uh, probably not. Oh. Probably doesn't even matter. Yeah. So I just did you like? Oh, go ahead. I want to know is Aliens canon? Oh, the second one. Yeah, because because the whole thing with the Queen, and I'm like, yeah. where did they get the Queen from? If they're a if they're a um a uh, a if creation, they're essentially a cre if if they're essentially a a a weapon. Well, he can't, like, create all those eggs forever, so he's got to create something that's an actual queen, I think, so she can produce the eggs. That's what I would think. No, that's a good no prize. That's a very good no prize. But uh, I I, I assume so. I think the only things we don't want to be canon are the third one and the fourth one. Mm -hmm. And then the AVP movies. Yeah. Though the first one wasn't too bad. It was the second one that was pretty horrifying. Uh, Did you like Daniel's? I think she was the only character that I actually got slightly attached to. That was the what, oh. my one major criticism of the movie is that I didn't feel like the characters were very well developed. I felt that having gone back and and I mean, Aliens has a pretty big cast. Yes. And I feel that you actually like and care about most of the characters, even or 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 they have distinct personalities and quirks and things. So that when things start going completely to crap, you feel it more like it feels uh, more substantial or I can't even I don't know if I'm if I'm getting the words right. It's you're more invested in it. Mm. And I felt like Daniels was the only one I I really liked. And the others were just kind of there. And it's but the thing is, is like. You've been doing this movie for forty years now. Yeah. You've got to come up with a better way. You've got you've you are now. It's your responsibility to make us like the crew the way you did in even an alien. Because he doesn't. Because like we've all seen this movie before, so you have mm-hmm. to make this fresh. And you know, I, I actually think they should have gone just a little bit more toward the Prometheus end of things. But then again, mm. I'm one of the few people I feel who like you know. 
Yeah. I know I'm in good company here because like both of us seem to like Prometheus. Yeah, yeah, I do. And um, so I, I don't. And I, I thought it was funny how much Michael Fassbender with long hair looks like Iggy Pop. Oh, boy. But he does. He looks so much like Iggy Pop in the scenes. But yeah, but the moment he cut his hair, he was there with David. Uh, David was there and he was there with uh, Walter. Mm-hmm. That, like, from the moment I saw that, I knew he was going to do try to switch places. Yeah. And had they kept him, maybe not shown that appearance change, maybe it would have been a slightly more surprise. But it was pretty much telegraphed. I mean, overall, it was it was it was I was good. I enjoyed it. But I was, yeah. it was like there were just I was picking apart on the way home. I'm like, you know, Daniels was the only one I like truly liked. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, when like. Like I said, they telegraphed the whole David thing, so her reaction at the end when she's going to the cryo sleep, I was just like, well, duh. And that's not yeah. the reaction you want out of me when I'm in the movie. So um, yeah. I didn't understand why, like, you know, you couldn't give – And like, the beginning was a little bit rushed. It's like, okay, they killed James Franco. Yeah, without even seeing him. That was a question I had because some of the promo materials, like, they had a three-minute prologue with um... – Elizabeth Shaw and David were like that whole narration about she cared for me or yeah, like no one else did. They were actually showing that and he drew a picture of her like a little kid. And then they also had a last supper little intro. And so I was like, so I was expecting that to be in the film, but it never happened, which would have, I think helped in your criticism there of getting more attached to the crew because that the last supper was really good. Cause you got to see everyone. Yeah. Daniels meets her little speech about you guys have sacrificed so much, yeah. which you've seen in all the trailers, but it wasn't in the film, which was so weird. Yeah. And then they've got the picture at the end of the movie. Yeah. And it's like, again, that would have had more of an impact if you'd given me more time to care about these characters. You know, mm-hmm. um, I because I like the guy from the guy from Empire. Um, Who's that Tennessee? I see. I, I don't that's watch the other Empire. Thing. I have to tell you, that's the other thing. With the exception of two or three character names, I didn't remember any of the character names. Yeah, I, I only know Tennessee Ferris. because he was the guy yeah. with the cowboy hat. I yep. remember Daniels because yep. she's one of the, and then I remember um, you know David and Walter. Other than that, the 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 black guy who was on the ship most of the time and was oh, killed okay. in the shower. Kevin yes. Bacon style, like in Friday the Thirteenth. Oh no! So, have you ever seen Friday the Thirteenth? Um, yes, I have. So Kevin Bacon laying down on the bed after having sex with his girlfriend, he gets the. That's R yes. The, that's what happens. You the, should never make Whoopi nope. in a horror. But yeah, so he's on Empire. Oh okay. Um, and he's really good, and but the woman he was doing it with in the shower looks so much like Kristen Stewart. It's distracting. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like I knew it you? wasn't Kristen Stewart, but like do half of the scenes, like right before their death scene, where they were kind of back and forth and flirty and stuff. Yeah. I kept thinking. I'm like, no, I know that's not Kristen Stewart, but I thought it was Kristen Stewart. I will actually want to know. Yes. Okay. When they find the ship in Alien, and Kane, John Hurt's character, mm-hmm. Kane, gets the face hugger and they bring him back yeah. to the Nostromo. They're in this chamber with like the thousands of eggs and the, and the, the film over the, you know, you know, the scene I'm talking about. Right? Oh yes. Of course. Yep. Where did we get that from? 
Where is the ship from? What ship is that? Oh. Who cultivated thousands upon thousands of eggs? If David was growing all them, but he didn't have thousands of them, he had like a little hovel full of them. So there's still a gap. Yeah. Like, where is that ship from? Because I know it's an engineer's ship. Yeah. Because it looks like another... Yeah. So is there another chapter where David finds another engineer's ship? And brings it, yeah. And, and brings it... And how and how is it that the corporation finds out about the aliens mm-hmm. enough to send the crew of the Nostromo to LV-426? Yeah. So those are my major questions. Where's What bridges the gap between this one and... An alien. Yeah, I don't know if we're there yet because he he Ridley Scott is saying that you know there be something after this and like the quote is it's going to run into the back of the head of Alien. <laughs> so there is something that bridges, but the next film everyone keeps saying it's the sequel to it, but he he's doing a film in between. Hmm. Awakening is really between Prometheus and because he let that slip in an interview. Uh, so I don't know if we'll get it, the movie didn't do very well. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know, and and especially because now we have all these, you know, after he regurgitated those little eggs, and Daniels is in in a uh, a bad situation. We're gonna have to wait to find out what happens to her. Yeah. So, I did like the actress who played her. I didn't. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen her in anything before. She kind of reminded me of Moira Kelly. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. From, from uh, Cutting, Cutting Edge. Edge. Topic. Yeah. Who is also okay. in... Um, <laughs> she's on the first season of The West Wing. Oh. And she was in a movie that is not particularly good, but I love because it's just a cheese romantic 90s movie with honors with Brendan Fraser and uh, Joe Pesci. Oh, um, but yeah, she kind of reminded me of her. Um, yeah, I always. Liked- I hope they make a how it should have ended, and Orm actually listens to Daniels when she says we shouldn't go there, and then they actually don't go there, and then it ends. Yeah, because <laughs> all they had to do was listen to her, basically. Yeah. Well, again, and the other thing was like, okay, I was like Billy Crudup in like just about anything I've ever seen him in, and. I thought he was really good in this, but then I'm like, he makes this whole thing about how he's religious, and it never comes up. Like, didn't he say something about how he is a person of faith or something? Yeah, and that's why people don't trust him. And that's why people don't trust him. And it's like, and from that point, and like, it's never, it's, so I don't know if this movie was severely cut down. Yeah. Or what, because that never becomes, it never seems to be a moment of tension. Mm-hmm. Aside from the argument, little argument he has with his wife, when there he he sees them on the camera holding the funeral, yeah. and he's got like one or two lines here and there, but it's it's never a, especially since Prometheus had this connection of creation, the creator, like you know there were there was a religious or philosophical undertone to Prometheus. Mm-hmm that you could have followed through with this, especially with a character like his, he didn't have to be like, you know, super outer space, you know, <laughs> outer space Christian man, but he could be enough of a more religious man among these scientists and working stiffs, you know, and, right. and it would have been a really good character dynamic. So that, that was my, that was my major issue with the, with the movie was that the characters felt underdeveloped 
and some of the CGI needed to be a little bit, a yeah. little bit tighter. But um, and in Prometheus, you had a good idea of who the um, each each of their roles were too. Whereas this one, you didn't really know. Besides, maybe Corrine was a ecologist or something because she's the one who mm-hmm. went off to do. And then you kind of got a sense of who the the captains were and things like that but otherwise you're like who are these other people are they colonial marines that kind of thing yeah yeah another one was a medic yeah and then then walter was the sort of walter was hal 9000 basically yeah um because in alien ash isn't they don't discover ash is synthetic until they until he tries to kill ripley and uh right and and he starts bleeding. Um, but then the other one was good. What was his name? Bishop. Bishop. Oh, I love Bishop. I love Lance Hendrickson and Aliens. He's so great as Bishop. Um, I was trying to think. It, it might have been the lighting of the scene because I could have sworn that during the scene where I think it's the Walter and David fight, and uh, Walter kind of rips something out of David. Thought for a second I saw the black yeah. goo come out of him. Oh no! But I think it was just the way the scene was lit. Yeah, I thought it was some sort of pin or something like okay. a connecting rod. Yeah. And so basically disconnecting him. But then he said how he has an upgrade, so I guess he didn't necessarily need that. But no, I—that's not what I saw. Yeah, the I think black I was, goo Yeah, I think I was just—I think it was the way the scene was lit. Um, I thought the escape scene on the cargo ship where the uh where the alien where they you know where she was on the on the tether and the yeah. crane I thought that was really cool. Yeah. That was really really tense and really well done. So, and I did like the scene that they were that continued the little 3 minute thing that we saw of him arriving on the engineer world. Oh, right. And killing all of them. Yeah. I thought that was cool. I thought that was really, really well done. But you're right. I wish it would have had a little bit more of the fun. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I, so. I guess it was promotional stuff. I don't really understand. Or maybe it'll be it'll be like an uncut version yeah, when maybe. it comes out on DVD. But yeah. why put those out there and then not have them in the film? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, my grade was a solid B. A solid B. On Covenant. Yeah. Maybe I'd say B plus A minus. I don't know. I'd like to see it again, I think. I I definitely see it again. Yeah. My A for that franchise, though, is the first two. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So if I'm judging it against the first two, it's that and Prometheus are kind of the second tier. And then the rest. And then there's so it's like the A is Alien and Aliens and the B is Prometheus and Covenant. The C level is uh, three. Three. And then I never saw either of the AVP movies, but Alien Resurrection just sucked. I didn't understand that. Oh, that's another thing is why David was, like, kissing Walter. It was so weird. And then he kissed someone else. Wasn't it, like, Daniels or somebody? I think so. I think he kissed Daniels. It was so weird. And I was having horrible flashbacks to Resurrection when Sigourney Weaver kissed that weird creation yeah oh so... gosh i hate uh, that movie yeah it's really it's, i don't it, know it doesn't even have a good scene in it 
at least the prison chase toward the end of Alien Three, you know, before she kills herself and all that, was, and her little her little travel companion. Yeah, at least at <laughs> least there are par- at least there's enough of Alien Three that's a watchable movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the prison. I like the, the I like the dynamic among the prisoners. I liked. Her, I thought she's really good in it. I thought Sigourney Weaver's really good in it. I thought she had some real chemistry with those people. Mm-hmm. But I didn't like. There's a lot that I didn't like. You know, but but then there's stuff that I didn't like about it, and then I didn't like the whole. You know, that they just basically offed t- two characters. At the beginning, they the didn't beginning. even get like a nice little death. They offed them in the credits. Yeah. Yeah. I heard. So that. the hope is. Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I heard that. I heard that the studio messed with that movie so much that Fincher almost wanted his name off of it. Oh wow! So yeah, someone had said like perhaps it's a dream. So if if another film is made, I think it must be because someone wants Alien Five to be made. It might be Fincher. I don't know if that's who it was, but and everyone hopes that maybe it'll correct continuity and it'll make it seem like. Um, three and four were just hyperspace dreaming by Sigourney Weaver, which would be nice if in five she's back and then she wakes up and there's Newt. But I yeah. don't know. Um, I was it Neil Bolenkamp proposing a movie at one. Oh, point? that's yes, yes, yes. That's who it is. Yeah, yeah. not Fincher. Because the 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 concept art's been floating around. Yeah. On like IO nine and stuff for a couple of years. Yeah. So yeah. That'd be an interesting. I think it's in doubt, but yeah. Maybe they could get a Carrie Hen to return to acting for a. Oh gosh, I think she's like a school teacher. She's, or a, kin- she's like a kindergarten teacher. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, now, before I go on another break, I'm going to do some more feedback by talking about some of the best and most notable blog comments I've gotten over the years. This came about because a couple of years ago, I took the time to clean up dead links and stuff like that, typos, etc. on the blog, and I began writing down all of the posts that people had commented on. A number of them were just like, oh, I like this, and that sort of stuff. Uh, Three o'clock high, I got a comment from someone I knew from high school. There were a few on the Kevin Bacon, Sean Astin movie, Whitewater Summer, a film that I blogged about back in 2012, but was still getting comments about as recently as 2016. Most of the comments have to do with the fact that Kevin Bacon is utterly unlikable in the movie, and how random it is that it even exists. Uh, This first one is from Jay Smith. He said he or she says watching this picture as I commented on it, my thought being that the 80s cranked out as much film as they could and then let the editors deal with it. I too have an attachment to those shitty films, but as I watched the actors climbing up the mountain trails and summer ski resorts and climbing rock escarpments from the blind sides, you know, the other cake, I wonder how did this film gross a dollar? You don't know if this film is about an angry 20-something pussy or a kid that doesn't understand his parents. Your guess is closer. There was another one from Alicia K. She writes, I'm actually in the middle of watching this right now, so I definitely felt the need to comment. I'm both. I'm only 25, but my mom, who was born in 1971, loved this movie as a teenager. She introduced me to it when I was really little. My sisters and I grew up watching it. It was always one of those movies I watched with Stand By Me or Now and Then. I've seen it maybe six times, conservative estimate, and I have to agree it holds up to what I remember from watching it in elementary school and as a teenager. 
I also identified with Alan and was surprised that Alan is Sean Astin's character, by the way, and was surprised when no one I knew had seen this movie or at least heard of it. I know now that I shouldn't have been, but it sucked that so many people missed out on this over-the-top awesome movie. My kids will watch this rad movie one day and probably have a crush on Sean Astin. It will probably take them years to undo the Kevin Bacon hate this movie creates. I'm not sure what the point of my comment is, but I was happy to read your post. I'm glad you liked the movie. I think that what I get out of this is the idea that movies like this aren't exactly the pinnacle of cinema, but they are so entertaining and you come back to them because they're just really fun. And yes, it takes a while to undo the Kevin Bacon hate. By the way, I read an interview with Sean Astin uh, back around the time he was in Stranger Things 2, and I think it was on the AV Club or io9, and he mentioned the film, and it was in the kind of the vein, it was like this random film I did, but at least he remembered doing the film. Speaking of obscure random movies, too, I also got comments on a post about one of my all-time favorite TV movies, and this is the 1989 flick, Dance Till Dawn was the prom movie that aired with uh, Chris Young, the kid from, I think his name is Chris Young, the kid from PCU who played the Prefrosh, and Alyssa Milano, and Christina Applegate, and Alan Thicke, Kelsey Grammer, Tracy Gold. I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, oh, God, the guy, the guy who was Cliff D. Young, the guy who was the dad in uh, Secret Admirer, and I think there might have been somebody else in it. But anyway, this is from uh, Amanda Leventhal, who's at Quasi Daisy on, on WordPress, maybe Twitter, I'm not sure. This is dated December 3rd of 2011. She says, I love Dance Till Dawn and Secret Admirer, too. I was so disappointed in high school that I never found an equivalent for Mount Neverest. The makeout spot. We I don't know if we had it. We, we had a makeout spot. It wasn't like an overlook. It was uh, Lotus Lake, which I never went to, but um, but that's where the kids got drunk and you know did things. I would have been in my basement watching stuff like Dance Till Dawn because I was a geek in high school and still my geek, but I had no life and still don't. Anyway, um, I think in the uh, in, in, in back into the comment here I think the Tempest Bledsoe character oh so she was uh, she was also in the movie I think the Tempest Bledsoe character was the only one I really could have done without didn't do much for me and the plot line for Alan Thicke didn't stick with me too much but even it had its moments like his girlfriend going off with the toll collector on the turnpike it is a miraculous night and Kelsey Grammer and Edie McClurg are hysterical to me even when they get the bill at the restaurant for the natural bounty of the earth and her dancing to rock music in her sweats and rushing to change to a Christian channel before he walks in the door. And so many great moments. As for Dan and Shelly, I still use this line from when Shelly was talking about being so embarrassed for having a milk mustache. And he said, oh yeah, I think I caught that on Nightline. No one ever gets the reference. I'm so glad I found your blog. I love this entry. And I love comments like this. Uh, it's not why I do the blog, but the fact that somebody really liked how I talked about something random is great. I really love it. I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, I have an outtake and a follow-up to an episode I did with a friend and semi-regular co-host of Stella's, so stick around. But you don't understand, there was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course Milhouse is in-game. Yes, and Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that, who is she calling? Nelson. You know why? Because they are endgame. 
it's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show has been going on for like so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's like it's been 30 years. Yeah, that's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Backgirl to Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm. Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were kids, you didn't think it would go very far? What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh. Ten episodes a year. Would you ever come first? Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a girl! Yeah! And girls have cooties! Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it! By doing what? Mansplaining? And casplaining. Ugh. Well, anyway. 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December, and of course the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call-in show for listeners will be scheduled in December, and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully. Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you. You're, no. Fly on with Backroll to Oracle in 2020. One, it's where we've begun It's all my greatest hits And if you are a fan Then you know that you've already got it Disc 2, it was all brand new An album's worth of songs I probably had to leave the whole disc blank Cause I'm all the label bottle Disc 3, this is really me In a grade school play I had about a hundred thousand lines But of course I forgot them So among the many things I have blogged about, comics as a topic is something I have come back to as much as any other. It makes sense since I've been collecting comics for nearly 30 years, and I even did a miniseries back in 2016 and 2017 called Origin Story. Prior to that, I did the 80 Years of DC Comics series. It took about a year and a half. And there are a number of posts on the site where people decided to write in with their thoughts either on the post or just the general topic. I wrote about Spawn issue number 10 years ago and had a couple of lengthy comments about the gimmickry of 90s comics. A number of comments there were, were on my Teen Titans posts. Some people wrote in appreciating the nostalgia for the era, but there were also comments, um, and, I, and I wanted to share these because it's just one of those one of those sets of comics I would get, by somebody named Rusy, R-U-S-Y, who decided to just pile on the snark um, by saying I had used the phrase Wolf Marvelman's Renaissance, and he had said, too funny, Wolfman burned out the day Perez left the book and never got his groove back. It was a long, sad 12-year decline into cruddiness. 
I think the phrase Wolfman's Renaissance, by the way, was in my reaction to using it in a post regarding the Titans Hunt storyline, which even interviews in interviews about it, he has said that at least at the beginning he felt energized because of editor John Peterson. And, and another comment this person left was about John Peterson. He said, LOL, John Peterson is a good editor. LOL, 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 this guy is responsible for turning Titans into a trend-jumping pastiche of everything that sucked in those days. Terminator's solo comic lame second stringers replacing beloved characters sales gimmicks galore really i actually did reply to that comment although it was kind of diplomatic i guess or was kind in my reply saying that peterson gave the title some life when it was more or less on the chopping block he at the time had been assistant to mike carlin he was probably given the title's lowest tryout he revived it in a big way to the point where there were two spinoffs. I mean, yeah, he left too early. That was part of the reason the book stumbled afterward. And I guess your mileage may vary on the quality of these stories, but I don't think you can deny that it was successful and therefore he was a good editor in that regard. Russi or Rusi or Rusty or whatever his name is comes back regarding a post where I mentioned Jim Lee. The context is that when I was heading into buying Titans back issues, it was the early 90s, and therefore I was able to get most of both the Wolfman Perez run and the Baxter series at a decent price per issue, mainly because while you had an artist like Eduardo Barreto during a long, solid run on the book, and it was a really solid on the book run on the book, his run of the titans didn't command the back issue prices of mark silvestri or especially jim lee who had been on x-men around the same time so what i got was Barreto is no jim lee true Barreto actually draws more than one face and body type and knows his anatomy lee just sucks donkeys I post these here, or I, or I mention these here, even though they're snarky retorts that were posted a good four years ago, because it kind of shows how wrong some comics fans can be when it comes to having a conversation about books. And I'm not saying this because this guy disagreed with me, but because I don't think he actually read what I was saying or understood, or that I acknowledge the imperfections of this era, but I still love it because it was my era of collecting those titles. Um, I actually don't mind Jim Lee. I'm not the biggest fan of his, but I still find the guy's work palatable from time sometimes. Um, I, I did enjoy his X-Men stuff. I reread, and then as far as, you know, the 90s Titan stuff, I will still reread the Titans Hunt in Total Chaos because flaws and all, I was completely pumped every time one of those books hit the stands. Plus, I'm too old for this shit. I mean... Even now, I'm seeing books that I used to love go slowly down the toilet. I don't have the energy to be a pissant about it like this rando commenter. So this is my a little bit of a shout out to Shag, where I'm like, you know, you find your joy, and like, you know, ruining others is just it's it's such a waste of it's a waste of time. So I just kind of why I bring those comments up. It's like you know, it's those comments were a few years old and it's just this, this snarky crap about the 90s and we all make fun of the 90s and we all make fun of like we can we can all have poke fun at it but like this is just kind of like it wasn't taking the piss out of it which i think is one thing that we like that we all like to do and and we take the piss out of something you kind of do it lovingly um I, I take the piss out of a 90s comic every festivus thing and there's just there's fun in that and it's because they're because they are batshit crazy but like here you've got like it's the the tone is almost you're an idiot for doing that. Yeah, maybe I'm taking a little too personally or whatever. But it's just like, you know, after a while, you're just kind of like, why, why, why do I, why do I have to put up with your shit? 
And so, yeah, like, so go out, like, take the energy you're putting into being, like, you know, retorting that my decision to call John Peterson a decent editor or that Wolfman got his groove back with the Titans hunt, you know, to, to act like I'm an idiot. Uh, take that energy and, and go find something you like, you know, and and just enjoy it. This isn't a shag segment, by the way, if you were thinking that's what I was going to get into. He was in the intro um, to the show today. I will say it, it is about one of the find your joy moments I've had over the recent last couple of years, and that's Robotech. Um, I rewatched all of Robotech on Netflix, and then I got to podcast about it with Donovan Grant. We sat down and talked mostly about Macross in the episode, but what you didn't hear was in the conversation we had prior to the show. And that's when we talked about the other Macross series, which was the Southern Cross, or the Masters as I've known it, starring uh, Angie's favorite Dana Sterling, and the Next Generation or New Generation, which was the Invid conflict. And we talked a little bit about the Jack McKinney novels, which I blogged about years ago. So here is Don and I talking Robotech. was a joy to watch on netflix <laughs> i'm looking forward to this <laughs> uh i always I, I the only other time i've ever talked about robotech was when i was with stella's show and i think that was like five years ago it was a long time ago i've written one blog post there were one blog post about robotech like god it was like when the blog first started so it was like seven or eight years ago mm. and it wasn't even about Robo- it was it was about robotech but it was about the the mckinney novels Oh man, I, I I'd like to read those. I mean, I'd like to read the, that that uh, that post. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to find it and dig it out and send it to you. I, yeah, I read them. Um, I just have a very vivid memory of of when Borders first opened in my town and going there because, like, we hadn't seen a bookstore that big, and mm. they had all eighteen at the time. There were only eighteen books. This was about ninety two, ninety three. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had all 18 of them, and I ended up getting, over the course of, and they were about like five bucks a paperback. So I would go and right. I would buy them in paperback, and I, I read the first 12, and then at some point when I was in college, picked up 
the first two of the Sentinels books in a first two or three of the Sentinels books in like one of those two or three in one book novel things. So yes. it's a really thick paperback. And then and then a couple of years later I when I finally discovered eBay, I got the the last two or three. I never read the the ones between um the ones that came out after the end of the circle. And I remember the end of the circle being very odd in some places. It's been mm-hmm. a long time and I sold them on eBay years ago, so I, I may either try to hunt them down in used bookstores or just find online copies through means <laughs> yeah um actually funnily enough like when stella visited me last time uh we went to my comic shop and they actually had uh, a handful of the um mckinney novels i was like nice. oh man but i did for whatever reason i didn't get them and i've never seen them since yeah and the the thing with me because i remember like a few times i've come across them but i've also come across like when they reissued some of the macross ones and they instead of mm. using um it, they use like stills from the TV show from the cover or something, and then you trade dress. And I remember that annoying me because one of my favorite things about the McKinney novels is the cover artwork because it's just gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. So cool. Yeah. So it, it reminds me of like the old Atari video game art and that that sort of stuff. It was just like right up that style. And uh, yeah, the only thing I remember really about it was how well the writers. Um, were able to bridge the gap between the different series mm-hmm. in a way that the series itself really doesn't for a lot of reasons. So. <laughs> for very real reasons. Yeah. Well, the, the, um, the first episode of masters, I think it's called Dana's story mm-hmm. and it's basically a clip show. Right. About Maximiria. About Maximiria. And, I don't think it's it's touched upon in the cartoon, but in the novels, it was that Max and Miria go off with the SDF three, and mm-hmm. she's raised by the three Zentradi spies, like the three Stooges. Oh, like um, uh, I don't remember their Rico, names. Rico, Rico, Braun, and yeah, Tonda. yeah, and they grow old and and everything, but they raise her on Earth, and and that I don't think that's really touched upon in the. Um, I yeah, forgot about that. <laughs> and then the, the, the Invid Invasion, when I was watching the Invid episodes, um, the first episode, the Invid Invasion was basically like matte painting stills. Really? Yeah. And and it's it's it was kind of disappointing because I would have loved to see that as its own episode. Mm. You know? So. Interesting. I remember... Um, I remember reading uh, the McKinney novels, and I, I just, when you mentioned that, her being raised by those Entrati characters, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, because that's, that's all, like, in hearsay, yeah. because you know, she's not actually their daughter. Funnily, funnily enough, I don't know if you know this, but, like, in the the Japanese Macross, there's, there's like, a, there's several Macross spinoffs mm-hmm. and, um, that, that take place in the same timeline, and there is a later series where you do see Max and Miria again, and you see, like, their family, uh-huh. and they have, like, seven or eight kids and they're all like green-haired daughters <laughs> i saw one my roommate my roommate my sophomore year of college got really heavy into anime and i watched a few of them before he really started going down that sort of tentacle porn thing <laughs> i was just like dude i i don't think i can watch what <laughs> the media blaster stuff <laughs> it was i don't remember the name of it but it was just like I just remember it opened with a, a very explicit lesbian scene. 
And then by the end, this woman was strung up, and I was just like, what the hell is going on in this, Dave? I'm going into my room, and I'm going to read for class. I have studying to do. But he rented, he had rented, because there was like a a, a video store, you know, a video store nurse, so he had rented Macross Plus, which I I really enjoyed. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. First of all, I thought it was like the animation alone Mm -hmm. was really gorgeous, and I, I really enjoyed the sort of top gun meets anime kind of type thing. of thing yeah yeah it was really i thought it was really you know uh you know who uh voices the main character in that no brian cranston oh really yes like, like in in the 90s he he did voiceover work for like like early 90s anime oh that's pretty cool yeah i, I watched it a few months ago it was cool i i you know it, it's it is like you know one of the macro spinoffs that takes place like a couple decades in the future but i mm-hmm. loved how the sdf1 looked yeah I'll, lit up and gigantic i was like oh this that's amazing and the music was awesome too yeah if only i could afford one of the toys <laughs> oh man I, I when i was a kid um i because you know I, I'll, I'll explain how i got into robotech but like i never saw any like robotech like legit robotech toys. I, I wanted so much to have like a veritech and yeah. it was just just my dream to kind of just play with like a guardian mode veritech all day and i, I never could find one i'm gonna be rude and ask when you were born 1989. Uh, okay, yeah. So, um, I want to say around 86, 87, maybe a little bit later, Matchbox had a line of toys that you can find on eBay, and they, they don't go for very cheap. Mm. Um, but I don't know whether or not you could transform the Veritex. And I think one of the I think one of the issues they ran into it. <laughs> Was um, if you want a Veritech that transforms, and you have a couple hundred dollars, track down a Jetfire from the auto uh, the Autobot Jetfire. Oh, really? Transforms. Yes, it's a it's a Veritech. It's a recolored Veritech. It, it is a it is a red and black. It is what it almost it almost looks like Rick Hunters. It's it's uh, it's a white Veritech with, but um, in the cartoon. And the comic of the Transformers, they always drew them differently, but the uh, it's it's very very close to that to that model. It's got some accessories and stuff, but yeah, it was the gun is the same and everything. And I had it as a kid, and then you know as you as you did when you were a kid in the eighties, you played with it to death. But it was my favorite Transformer, and and it, yeah, it matched up pretty closely to Veritex. But I don't know if any of the Matchbox toy Veritex actually could transform in the way they did. I had Scott Bernard's cycle. Which did oh, not nice. transform. It did not transform. It was um, it was a stationary cycle, and it didn't come with a figure. But it was the figures. The, the figure it, it fit a GI Joe figure. So I would I would use it with GI Joes. I did see. I mean I, I mean um, I have the the, the Macross the entire Macross series in, in the original comic mm-hmm. comics, and they have, like, ads for toys all over it. And I'm, and I'm just, like, salivating. When I was a kid, I was, like, salivating. I was, like, <laughs> why can't I be, like, ten years older than I am? Back when this was this was all real. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so um, the way I've got the uh, the episode is that I'm going to do my intro separately. And then, so basically, we'll be coming back from a break, and then I'm going to um, introduce you. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk, and then I'm actually I'm going to talk about Masters and and the new generation. But I was going to I'll do that after like you know after we're done I'll go to another break and then I'll just record a separate segment or something. Okay. And it was honestly for years I know I didn't call it the new generation I just called it the Invid storyline because right. I just remember the and and how much I love the Invid as enemies because they're just really scary looking. 
mm-hmm. and mindless, and it was way better than like Masters is so uneven, right? And I've saw Dana, um, I saw Make Dana Sterling's uh, butt and her, as Stella puts it, her tatas way too much. <laughs> I remember. Um... I think after we recorded Stella and I, I was like, I need, I need to see Masters again because I, I do remember as a kid it got to, when, it, when it aired on Shinami, I got to a point where I was really really enjoying it and I was like I, I need to get back to that when I remember really liking. I watched the first three episodes and one the first three episodes are boring as hell, but also like I think all three of them like ended with her in the shower like this <laughs> like without fail. <laughs> well, it, it drags. And mm-hmm. I, I, they get into this holding pattern with the masters. Like I don't understand what the motive, their motivation for anything is. I, I sort of do, but it's like you've got the firepower to wipe everybody out, and like they keep trying to attack you, and you're beating them, but you don't seem to do anything but hover there, and it just it drags. And there's a couple of really good characters. The the one woman um, commander with the black hair, whose name is escaping me right now. Oh gosh! I, I really yeah, liked her, her character, but then you had that whole storyline with Zor, and it just—that's mm. what I remember very. That's what I remember. Not I would say very well, but like I remember that the most. Zor's. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, it, and it was just like what I always found interesting that what happens at the end, the way they tied it in, was that that inadvertently led to the Invid invasion. I actually um. Funnily enough, I was at my comic shop yesterday, and I found – I'd seen the ads for this, but I, I found it. Um, the Robotech quote-unquote graphic novel that I they have. released. I, ha- I, I found it on eBay on the cheap a few months ago, and I bought it. Yeah, it's, it's basically a prequel one-shot. It is. It is. In fact, it is, it is. most of what is in there is what's in the very, very beginning of the first McKinney novel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's basically Zor discovering Dying. whatever, yeah, protoculture and that whole thing, and then the flower and blah, 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 and then eventually <laughs> sending the SDF-1 off and stuff. And and so it is essentially a prequel of, like, how did this ship get there? Yeah, which, so. which they, I mean, like, if you if you cut out all the Robotech Master stuff, you know, they get into that in, like, the uh, the narration for the first episode. I mean, yeah. you see, like, like, you know, a little bit of Rick and a little bit of Roy... And global, but like it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's completely useless, but it's not information that I would say is not explained throughout the series. Yeah, yeah. The Invid stuff I really like though, because it really is like Mad Max, Red Dawn type of stuff that is just, uh, you know, I didn't get tired of them. Just they're on the road and they're on the road and they're on the road trying to get to Reflex Point, not knowing whether or not anybody survived. And stuff. Yeah, it was, it yeah. Was... I, I, I'm easily the least familiar with that, but like from what I've seen, like it's not. A, it doesn't seem to be as militaristic as as Macross and Masters. Like there's like a bunch of kids there, mm-hmm. and I know I know that there are like um like, like like weapons that transform and stuff. But generally, I mean, I, I remember just seeing like it. It looks very ragtag. It is. is. It opens with basically the the cavalry arriving to fight the invid and failing, and then Scott Bernard is like one of the survivors, and he ejects, and it's basically him getting this band of people together to, and he's on this like mission to get to the center of the invid hive, and like you know, but like seeing along the way, this Earth's essentially a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and. It's it was very well done. I'm, I'm sure it, dra- it did drag in a few places because it's just such a long season. But, but overall, it was it was really uh, well done. Um, 
except for like there's there's a couple of very unfortunate jokes that just do not translate well 30 years later (laughs) but yeah and uh but not as much nudity now to follow up on that i know that don i think he's reread some of the jack mckinney stuff if not all of it since then i also realized and you have to forgive me for not realizing this sooner that one of the authors of whom mckinney was the pen name was james luceno or luceno who wrote a number of star wars expanded universe novels a couple of which I read, which were very good. I've also had the opportunity to read all of com- the Comico Macross comics, thanks to the generosity of Don, who sold me his duplicates, and then also to Titan Comics, the uh, publisher who had been printing trade paperback collections. And In fact, they just released the first volumes of the Sentinels series, which I've never read, and I'm looking forward to seeing. I've also recently read most of the Wildstorm Robotech comics. Those are actually pretty interesting, because they seem to tell stories about individual characters within the context of the greater story. I have one or two individual issues to track down to complete that set, and then I'm going to do a big reread and post about it over on Uncollecting. So watch for that hopefully later in the year. I'm just going to see if I can get it in a Baltimore before I go eBaying for it. But what I will say is that they're worth picking up if you find them in a 50-cent bin. Also worth getting has been the Titans Comics Robotech series, or Titan Comics Robotech series. Don, I think, was cool to it at the beginning. I think he dropped it for a, after a while because it went in a different direction and the characterization was different than what he was expecting from what I understood, what we talked about. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I know Ange is very happy that Dana Sterling is in it now, but uh, I would recommend picking it up and or tracking down the trades and getting it. They just are redoing the series. They're calling it Robotech Remix. Uh, where they're kind of taking another direction there. So that'll be interesting to see. Now I want to go to commercial with another comment. This one is from Michael J. Miller, who commented on my Star Wars issue number 81 post. And he says, ah, now this sounds like Star Wars storytelling. I grew up reading the old EU novels and a little of the Dark Horse comics of the EU. They were what continued the story of Luke Han, Leia, Chewie, and company for me. I've yet to find anything interesting in the new Disney canon, especially in the new comics. They all seem to lose my interest after a few issues, refusing to step outside of the A New Hope timeline or take any real risks in their storytelling. This was so refreshing to read. You maybe want to run out and grab this Dark Horse Omnibus. Thank you for your review. And I just thought that tied it well into what Don and I were talking about with Robotech because uh, there's more than one interpretation of that property. And like I said, you find your joy. And you find your joy when it comes to these things. And I definitely am am feeling that uh, at this point in comics, like really wanting to find what I like and just stick with it and and leave it when I'm like, you know what, I'm done here, and and go find the next thing instead of overly committing to something because I've been doing it for for years. So, And that's kind of why I don't read a lot of DC, you know, and I really don't read any Marvel, but I do read a fair amount of of indie comics, especially things that are in miniseries form. So there you go. But I'm going to take another break right now, and when I get back, feedback, outtakes, and stuff from across the pond, stick around. Your white privilege. What is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say I that? Think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan. Are we trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names? No number. Just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it. 
but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. Mm-hmm. Questions. We don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. (laughs) (laughs) Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers we didn't even talk about japan in this one i think we did well <laughs> the show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on itunes and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com i just hope it's not boring to listen to like oh my god they're not going anywhere truly they don't have answers <laughs> <laughs> well i can also mention more star trek episodes <laughs> i never thought i'd be regretful But some stupid number one hit singer has gotten me in this mess. You can put it on every compilation, that's alright. You can hear it on the oldies radio station every night. And if you want it again, you got it. It's right here in my box set. Now, movies and music have been another steady topic over the years. I've covered a variety of flicks on this site with a number of guests, but I wanted to highlight two comments I got. First, I wanted to share this comment from Trentus Magnus, who was a guest on this show to talk about Clerks, who left this comment when I talked about Rosemary's Baby a couple years ago when doing my Shocktober month. He says, Here once again the fanboy muse appears to be moving the two of us in similar directions. I've been watching horror movies lately as well, and like you, horror isn't my usual game. Still, there are some good ones out there, obvious classics like Halloween and the like. Never saw Rosemary's Baby. Honestly, it's one of those movie premises that just seemed like a dud to me. It always has. The movie's rep speaks for itself. I'd never say otherwise, but there's something about the movie that's just never grabbed me. I think we line up with our thoughts on this film. I wanted to give Magnus a shout out because he has been a fan and friend over the years. We talked about Clerks together. This is a great episode, but if you really want to hear me and him talk, go on his show, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Find our two episodes about two REM albums, Out of Time and Automatic for the People. They were some of my all-time favorite guest spots on someone else's show. He got married earlier this year, so a belated congratulations to him. His show is a great one overall. Go all the way back to the beginning and listen to everything, especially his big book series with Chris Honeywell. You will not be disappointed. Another movie post that got 
one of my all-time favorite comments was a post about the multiplex I used to go to on a regular basis. This was the United Artists Patchogue Theater on Long Island. I originally wrote the post for an in-crap a number of years ago, and then I rewrote it for this blog in 2010. I got two comments in 2012 and 2014 that were really great and really speak to how fun it is to write about this stuff so other people can read it. The first is from Kim. She says, I used to work there. I think I started a few weeks after it opened. Maybe it was because I was so young or or it was my first, quote, real job, but it has to be one of the best couple of years of my life. My boss at the time would have preview parties Thursday night after all the customers would leave. The staff could invite their friends, hang out, drink. It was the best. I made some great friends working there and had so much fun. I am 41 years old now, and I can say that working there was on my list of bests in my life. It makes me sad to think of it gone. Next is from Sean Buckley. He says, I used to come here so much as a kid that my grandma usually took me to see movies here in the 90s and early 2000s. I was only born in 1990, so I never got to see the drive-in. It used to be a drive-in at one point. Uh, It was such a great atmosphere. It felt like a movie at home or on a big screen TV my parents couldn't afford at the time. I used to eat a whole tub of popcorn, extra butter, no problem and a little bit of my sister's candy, and then we'd go to California Diner next door, and I'd have pasta with meat sauces always, LOL. Oh, God, that's a lot of food. Last movie I saw there was just with my grandma in January 2006. It was King Kong. I wish I would have gotten to see it going down to have one last memory of the United Artists. So sad. I miss it terribly, just like the old arcade I used to go to every weekend, especially during summer vacation. Sports Plus in Lake Grove in New York. I miss that place terribly to another story there's a lot of there's no punctuation in part of this so i'm doing my best here me and my grandma drive by it and i just get choked up a little seeing just woods and high grass now best movie theater ever thank god regal cinemas still being in business on portion road in lake ronkonkoma that's another childhood theater i used to go to and i still go there at 23 r.i.p united artists one of the great ones I really do love comments like this. I love when people I don't know come and comment on things that we have in common, whether it be a movie or television shows, locations we frequented. Chris Sheehan of Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill grew up two towns over from me. We both went to the same LCS for years, and every once in a while we swapped stories of or memories of the Sable Oakdale area. Uh, I definitely need to get him on the show at one point. Now, as far as music goes... I got a lot of feedback on music-based posts from my friend Laura, who I've known for, God, 20 years now through the uh, my so-called life listees, the mail list we used to belong to. Listees, shout out. Go back to um, the nine, 1994 episodes. I did a two-parter on MSCL. I had a bunch of people on. It was great. Anyway, Laura had some great things to say here and there, some of which made made actually in was put into feedback on older episodes. The clip, though, I'm going to play is from Andy Leyland. Um, he's the host of Hey Kids Comics, The Palace of Glittering Delights. I believe he's been on the Deep Cities 9 show and the Firefly show, some other things on the... Um, he does the Overlook Dark Knight with Mike Bailey. And I have had uh, him on to talk about comic stuff before. We talked about the V comic book, I believe, in the science fiction episode or licensed property episode of DC 80 Years. And he and I did an episode that I'm really proud of about the Batman miniseries, The Cult. Here, he comments on my blog post about 
R.E.M.'s song, Everybody Hurts, which I think I titled the most earnest song of the 90s. He says, as usual for Tom, this is pretty much spot on. As you noted, this was so completely out of step with popular music at the time. It's almost a prototypical song by R.E.M. by being an atypical R.E.M. song. Stipe had never been as blatant in his lyrics before or after, with the possible exception of Ignore Land. And whilst it is easy to mock now, the true sentiment always is. Hearing this on the radio in 1983 was like somebody had thrown cold water over your head. And now here is a clip where Andy and I did talk a little bit about music in the 90s. Both of us listened to Green, and we were both like, it's a good, very good album, but I don't think we'd have anything to say about it that would constitute a whole episode, and so we both wanted to start with Out of Time. So over the course of, and this is one of those episodes that he's recording now and won't get released for 60 years. Yeah. So (laughs) we're going to do Out of Time. Eventually, we'll do Automatic for the People, which is my favorite R.E.M. album, and then Monster. Um. My roommate. Well, that's good because if we do a long play about them, I wanted to do New Adventures in Hi-Fi or Accelerate or yeah. Murmur. Um, New Adventures in Hi-Fi is a roommate it, my roommate had in college, and I remember enjoying it. But by that point, I was so down this rabbit hole of shitty '90s ska music that I, <laughs> I like the Mighty Mighty Boss tones and like that stuff. Oh, but yeah. that I, I that you know the the only thing that. And, and I'll, I'll defend my musical choice in this regard to this day, but the only thing that I discovered in the late 90s that I think has some really, still has some staying power with me was the Bare Naked Ladies, which will pop up on my iPod every once in a while. I'm like, oh, I remember why I like this band, but the late 90s were not particularly great. When I came. Yeah, see, over here they were brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Oasis, Pulp, Blur, Sleeper, <laughs> Men's uh, uh <laughs> We got, we got, um, by the end of the 90s, it was Kid Rock and Limp Biscuit. Yeah, you, you were kind of shitty in the late uh, 90s. No offense, dude. But No, you're not taking Creed. <laughs> <laughs> I, they used to get played an awful lot on MTV2. Mm. <laughs> I will never forget the first time I watched MTV2 because at the time in the late 90s, it was like a satellite-only channel. And my... Amanda and I were, were Amanda and I have been together for twenty years, and <laughs> and we were this is when Angela we still, and I have been together twenty years. Yeah, like we haven't been we've been married for it'll be thirteen in November, but we've been together for twenty, and um, we we were dating at the time, and so we were at her friend's house, and 
it was, God, it must have been like one or two in the morning and we're all just hanging out as you do. And, uh, and we had MTV2 on because he wanted to show us, he, he wanted to show us the video for Smack My Bitch Up by Prodigy. Because <laughs> it, t- it had just come out, there was all this controversy and he's like, they're only showing it late at night. And, and he hadn't had some forethought to, you know, hit record on a VCR. So we watch it and we watch a couple of other videos that I'll just never forget at, ran- at completely at random. MTV2 decides to air the video for Worlds Apart Separate Ways by Journey. Have you ever seen that one? No. It's, oh my God, they're, they are at a loading dock and singing, it is, it is just unintentionally hilarious. It's just like, <laughs> if you ever get the chance to watch it, it's just one of those videos, like it was probably what, 82, 83. So it's that era where like, making music videos is literally let's just see what works on a low budget and they're playing like air instruments at one point it's so just hilariously bad especially because steve perry can't there's no subtlety to steve perry oh no (laughs) so but yeah but i'll never forget that because that was back when mtv2 just ran videos all the time and and then now it's just yeah, MTV2 used to be better than MTV because of that yeah. reason. You could just put it on in the background and it would just play a music. Yeah. And they were quite eclectic at the time as well, as mm-hmm. well as some of the drivel that they played. Yeah. They'd also throw some, some Kristen Hirsch would be in there and throw Muses would be in there. And you'd be like, oh, this is this is a little bit different at least. So some of that was nice. Yeah. Well, I just remember the heyday of like 120 minutes. And, yeah, I like that. And I, I would see that. See, I didn't have cable so I didn't have MTV as a kid, so I would watch it at friends' houses and stuff. And my friends were more into Headbangers Ball than they were into yeah, Owens. I liked that as well, though. Oh, it was, that was a fun show because it was just um, – because some of the stuff they played was just absolutely batshit mm. nuts. My cable service in New York used to pick up the Canadian channel Much Music, which was always a hoot to watch because it was totally – I mean, it's Canadian, so it's going to be sort of weird – <laughs> but I'll just they I'm not kidding they used to have something every year called the tree toss and they had a v, VJ who was named Ed the sock who was literally a sock puppet smoking a cigar and he used to host this thing called the tree toss and what they would do was the much music staff would take the company Christmas tree up to the roof of their building and throw it over the edge of the building into a dumpster and they would you know, basically take bets on whether or not they would actually make the dumpster. And it was an annual thing. And I just remember watching this going like, this is brilliant. Why aren't they doing this on TV? Because <laughs> Carson Daly has to look cool. Yeah. Ugh, See, God. we had the word, which was far from cool. Look some of that up on YouTube. <laughs> the, what's it? Was it with the slits playing with no pants on? Or was it with L7? Probably so the cam- So the, the cameraman was just zooming right where he shouldn't be. <laughs> Wasn't L7 the group where on stage <laughs> where the lead singer like took her tampon out and threw it into the crowd? Isn't that, wasn't that? That's L7. That, that was yeah. L7, right? Yeah, that was them. Oh my God. Class. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, that was the early 90s. The early 90s, like, because the, the, the three pump, we're going to do three pumpkins albums. We'll do Siamese Dream, Pisces Iscariot, and Melancholy. Mm. Because. With the Pumpkins, after Melancholy, I was, I love Melancholy, but when the next album came out, I never, I, I 
having roommates helped because I didn't have to buy it. And I listened to it. I'm like, what is this shit? So I, I, I dropped the pumpkins after. Yeah, after Billy Corgan went on a strange musical journey. Mm-hmm. I blame uh, Courtney Love. No, she, Just generally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend, my friend, Shell would have have words with both of us for that, and and she and I have ha, and I have had that conversation. Oh, don't get, I, I quite like a bit of hole. Oh, live through this was a great album. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, it was. And even bits and pieces of um, celebrity skin, celebrity skin were really, really good. Hole suffers from the the same problem that like Guns and Roses did, where like I liked the music at least you know one or two one album and then parts of another album, but the lead singer I could just you know actually could take a flying leap for all I care. Yes, and, and apparently he's subbing for a thing going ACDC, which I can't see going down well. No. I don't see ACDC fans tolerating a prima donna, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, I don't. I can't either. And, and yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting to Yeah, it may see. be interesting to watch on a train wreck level. <laughs> but it's I like... can't imagine ACDC's fans tolerating him being two hours late. Yeah, I know. It's like any time Van Halen tries to actually get together in some sort of original lineup reunion, and it's just like, no, this isn't happening. <laughs> and David Lee Roth's looking like the Crypt Keeper lately anyway. <laughs> yes, he is. He's, he's not looking good. Yeah. And that segues into my next clip, which is a brand new piece of material. I wanted to have Amanda on this episode, and we were going to talk about stuff that we missed or forgotten. The discussion became a little more random. So here we are talking a little bit about music for a little while. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that So this will be a, well, quick for us segment, which means it's not going to be... So it will be an hour instead of three? Yes, it'll be an hour. Yes, Great. exactly. Good. It's the last segment of the episode, and I wanted to do sort of a fill-in-the-blank of looking at all the different music episodes we've done, because we've done quite a few. We did one where we looked at music from kind of our high school years. Mm-hmm. We did 1995. We did 96 through the lens of the HF Festival, and two episodes ago we did 1999. So I thought we would briefly talk about 97-98. And this came from the fact that you had been listening to the episode of 99 and said, I think we forgot Lauren Hill. Yes, because anyone who has listened before knows I have a thing for the Fugees. And then I just felt really guilty because... The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was one of my favorite yeah. albums in my college years. Yeah, and that came out in 98. It did come out in 98, yeah. And, then, yeah. and there was, um, it, the, with the Grammys that took place in 99, she took all yes. the Grammys, and they just kind of fell off. The, right. I think the Fugees have come up, for the most part. At probably every Like every time, time. we talk music. Because yeah. I, you know, I, I don't miss a, I don't miss a trope or a trick that yeah. I don't <laughs> run into the ground, apparently. I have patterns. So, so sorry, dear listeners. So what is it about the Miseducational Lauren Hill? I mean, it's a really great album, but what is it that makes it stand out among, like, everything? Because the, the late 90s, there was just this glut of, of music and, and pop, and you had to be really unique to stand up and out and have something that was considered, right? you know outstanding well i 
full disclosure, I have not listened to the full album in a really long time, but I think what I liked about it was it it had so many different influences. I think, you know, the you know, the first single that thing was so like such a throwback. Mm-hmm. It was like it had a definite definite kind of Motown feel to it. It was very poppy, which the Fuji's were not necessarily. No. I mean, they definitely had Wyclef could definitely weave in like a a mainstream yeah type of feel to things. So yeah, that first single was was incredibly poppy and very catchy. I still love that song. It's a good song. But then, you know, you had other singles that were like a little more I want to say deeper. Like there was a lot that was she had just had a child. Mm. You know, so they were a lot more personal. They were they weren't as poppy. I would say that thing is probably like the the glossiest yeah. of the of the singles off that album. And then you had ones that were a little more about like, you know, social justice or whatever. So I just thought it was a really, it was very different. It was very different from what we were hearing. Mm-hmm. And I think actually Wyclef came out with, with his, his solo, solo album. Was right. that, that might've been 97. It was right around the same time. 97, yeah. 98. Cause I just remember Gone Till November yes, was, was yeah, a big song. That. Yeah. So, and, and that was very different for him too. So that's what was interesting is like one, and, I know I say things are interesting all the time, but that's what was uh, intriguing to me is mm-hmm. that they split off and did like completely different things because Proz was in like, didn't he do Ghetto Superstar? He was in Ghetto Superstar with Maya and... But I still don't know what he did because Maya sang the sang the hook and he was in the... he Was was he the one who almost got blown up by a firework on the stage? I think so. At, it might have been the VMAs, but yeah. like he got he had to get yanked away from like a, a yeah. explosive. I think so. Oh boy, back when the VMAs were relevant. But um, <laughs> that's what's funny, you know, like he's like in this song that's for this stupid Warren Beatty movie and like he... You don't even know what part he has in the song, and he's almost getting blown up on the stage because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And you've got Wyclef kind of doing Wyclef's thing, and then you've got Lauren Hill doing this beautiful, well-rounded, mm-hmm. comprehensively good, you, like you've listened to it the whole way through, album-winning ooh gobs of Grammys. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess two out of three ain't bad, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. and you, in an off conversation recently, you you compared Wyclef, though, to Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas, <laughs> the idea that he just kept showing up well, everything. Because that's when, like, they both kind of have this weirdo kind of God complex. Remember when Wyclef thought he was going to be the president of Haiti or mm-hmm. something? And I was like, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and then I think that was when, like, Lauren Hill had gone full Kurtz and, yeah. like, was living somewhere yeah. in, like, maybe Haiti or Honduras and she just wasn't on the map anymore and I don't know Proz was probably in a bar somewhere but like yeah the that whole thing and then when I think about the black eyed peas and how god they're so bad but yeah Wyclef just thinking like oh I'm an uber mm-hmm. producer and everything I touch is gold and it's like no honey everything you touch is pretty shitty yeah. <laughs> well so we got we got Lauren Hill and I've got this long well not it's not as long of a list and then I don't think we you know, we, some of these things we talked about, I don't really think we need to go back into like the boy band thing because the, this is like right around the time the boy band thing starts to t- starts to rise and it really crests about a year later. Although this is the 97 is the year that Mbop. Oh, is, yeah, is yeah. And so, the Spice Girls. Yeah, the Spice Girls. Because that was, I mean. Because Jerry, Jerry Hollowell left in the summer of 97, I think. Probably. Right? I just remember that spring was like peak what the fuck. Because like, yeah. I would come, I, I was in a sorority, most people know that. 
I lived in the sorority house my second year, and I came home one afternoon, and like literally back to back, it was like Umbop and then Wannabe. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, there's a toddler playing the drums, yeah. and then there's these wacko chicks like singing the song. Like, I'm like, I don't know yeah. what is happening. Although, as odd as I mean, Wannabe is still a, just a fun pop song, and as odd as Umbop was when it charted. And I guess now we're just so used to seeing, like, you know, the years and years we've had of, like, Disney Channel and Nickelodeon bands. Mbop is not a terrible song. There are worse songs by Disney, like, young young people groups oh, yeah, than, yeah. Well, than that. And there's something to be said for, like, these kid groups that come up where they play their own instruments. Because yeah. if you want to bring it to today, like, the Jonas Brothers got back together. I, so... That was way beyond us. Like we were way oh, too yeah, old we to, to know what a Jonas brother. By yeah, the time the Jonas brothers were. We were too old to know what a Jonas brother was when they when they were kids. But yeah. then they came, they came back this year and they got some bops yeah. on the radio. Yeah. So you know it's like and they all play their own instruments. So I think there's something where like your musicality is like genuine. It is it is grounded in a skill where you probably have a better chance of like looking back on your music and being like, yeah, it was probably cheesy, but it. It doesn't make you want to die inside. Yeah. Versus like a bunch of synth pop boy band bullshit. Yeah. So back to more quality music. Um, <laughs> as I wanted to, you know, so briefly mention the boy bands, but I wanted to go from Lauren Hill to Janet because yes. Velvet Rope came out in yes. 98, right? Did I? 97, 98. I could have sworn, Rope. I could have sworn it was fall of 97, <laughs> but I don't have, I, I'm, my phone is dying, so yeah. I can't look it <laughs> yeah. up. But. Um, We're kind of combining it. I just remember I listened to it a lot my third year, and Mm -hmm. that was the 97-98 academic year. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it came out sometime then. And it's a follow-up to Janet. Janet was, I mean... Massive. Was massive, which followed up up Rhythm Nation. Rhythm Nation was right before. It was Rhythm Nation, Janet, and um, and Velvet Rope. Velvet Rope. And prior to that was Control. So, like, I mean, for the better part of... um, 10 to 15 years she had he really was the Super Bowl really just like that Super Bowl performance like you know because All For You was coming out I think yes was All For You was the album that, that she was promoting well All For You was after Velvet Rope yeah but that was, was that was what she was yeah because we were out of college yeah so that must have when, been what when, she yeah because she JT because Justified had come out yeah and, and yeah. so like you know you think of like you know four huge how the, the Velvet Rope being like kind of the fourth of four like really big albums well what's interesting is I don't know if the Velvet Rope was I mean it probably sold well because it was a Janet Jackson album yeah. but I remember a lot of people being disappointed that it wasn't Janet because Janet was so massive mm-hmm. and had so many like uh, kind of poppy kind of hits and I just remember everyone well not everyone but like a number of my friends who had watched her career the whole time were like ooh Janet got dirty yeah. because like it was more like it was just more the the whole album is a lot more intimate and she gets into some things that she likes to do in the bedroom that yeah. you probably didn't know about. Because, like, when you listen to the whole thing, there's all these interludes in between mm. the songs, and they're kind of, like, you know, provocative or whatever, yeah. or just deeply personal. And so I think it kind of threw people off because Janet was just, like, pop song after pop song after pop song. I mean, yeah. I think the edgiest she got was that song she did with Chuck D. Yeah. 
yes. on it. I mean, and if was a little, because uh-huh. that with the video was a little like, you know, yeah. edgy Janet. But like, Velvet Rope was very much like, she gained weight and didn't give a fuck. Good for you, Janet. She like had the, like, she, it was all like, I mean, pretty much every song was about boning. Like, it's just... <laughs> She, uh, she, she went, um, she went in and I think I actually really liked the album. to write papers to. I wrote almost every paper I wrote that year to that album. But the the spoken tracks between songs, that is such a CD era thing oh, yeah. for albums because you don't have that on, the space on a record or cassette is just too, was just too limited for that. I, I'm sure that somebody can curl along and correct me and say, hey, this album from the 70s has spoken Oh, trust me, you'll be corrected if they but, find it. But like, if you think of this or you think of like the soundtracks to Tarantino movies usually had some clips from the movie and that became the thing on, on mm-hmm. movie soundtracks for a while where like, you know, you'd have whatever songs there were, but between it, it would be like... Pieces you know, of conversation. Pieces of conversation from the movie. I'm pretty sure that happened on the Train Spotting soundtrack too. Yeah, again, and, don't quote me on that. I don't yeah, remember. but I mean, but you know, the, but you're right. The long story short is like it's just some one of those. It's one of those things where like you have the space and the the ability to do that on a CD that you didn't have like prior to that. And then we had like speaking just staying with like women. This was the this was the two summers of Will Affair. You're right. And you had, and you had, like, it's, I was just looking at it, it was like, because in my mind, the late 90s, like, you know, I I, I do tend to associate them with, like, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears. But that was really, like, 99. It was, like, 99. And I'm going back and I'm going through, so I well, have... Well, or in late 98. Yeah, and, the, and there was, like you said, you had the Spice Girls and you had Anne Hansen and you had, like, you know, 96 had the Macarena, 97 or 98 <laughs> had Barbie Girl. But then you have Paula Cole... Sean Colvin, Cheryl Crow's follow-up mm-hmm. to, um, uh, it was, which was came out in 96, but was still charting in 97, Sarah McLachlan. But even then you have the rise of like the country pop. Like, it's oh, yeah. like Taylor Swift owes her like so much of her career too. Shania Twain. Shania Twain and Leanne Rimes, Faith Hill, the Dixie Chicks, you know, these, mm-hmm. these women who were huge pop, that pop country crossover that yeah. they did, which men in country weren't doing from what I remember all the men from country aside from Garth Brooks right but yeah know, maybe Tim McGraw I'm trying uh, to make other, other big not Tim, I mean people. Tim McGraw's whole little crossover attempt with Nelly was later okay that was in like the early odds yeah but um which you know I mean I think I, I'm pretty sure that record did chart but I hated that song I thought it was stupid but anyway yeah I, I, it was mostly women but I also think a lot of times women get not I'm gonna say get away, but I mean with it. But like, I think a lot of women artists, because there is a certain amount of vulnerability in mm-hmm. a lot of songs that women perform or yeah. write or what have you, it can cross a genre. I mean, look at Casey Musgraves That's today. True. What I do appreciate about Casey Musgraves, though, is that like she is unapologetically like she's got a country twisted. Like all of her her songs are country songs. Mm-hmm. Like they just if they chart, if they go mainstream. She reminds me a lot of like a Dolly Parton. Yeah. Like every once in a while you're going to have a single go more mm-hmm. mainstream, but at the end of the day, she's a country yeah. star. Well, I was thinking, I think with the exception of the Dixie Chicks, because the Dixie Chicks had 
two pretty big albums in the 90s and they had Wide Open Spaces and Fly, I think, were two albums. And Wide Open Spaces, the song. Yeah, I used to listen, I listened to the the hell out of that CD as well. That and The Miseducation were hell. And Shania Twain's uh, Come Come On Over. over Because I had the three CD (laughs) disc changer in my RAV4 and so I could play three CDs at a time. So... Shania, Faith, and Leanne, though, the other thing must be noted, too, is their, their big crossover hit were all very slow, ballady, almost, because um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're still the one. You're still the one I song that was the big thing for Shania Twain. And Leanne Rhymes said, how do I, it was a, how she covered a Trisha well, Yearwood song. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, remember when and it was I only like knew totally, that my dad listens to country music. Well, remember how awkward sauce it was? I think at the Grammys where like, Leanne had performed, they were both nominated for the song yeah, or, or something. something like and that. like, yeah. one of them was waiting backstage and they thought they were going to win it yeah. and the other one won it. Uh, I'm like, And Leanne you? Rhymes was like, a kid. She was like in her teens, I think. Um, right? Yeah, maybe like 18. Yeah. I don't know. She was very, she was younger she was, than like Shania. When Blue her. came out, mm-hmm. she was 15. Yeah. So whenever that happened, I don't Didn't remember. she cover Patsy Cline on that? I want to say she covered Crazy at some point. She probably did. Well, I remember her saying, and it was obvious that Patsy Cline was a big influence. Yeah. Yeah. And then Faith Hill had Breathe? I can't, she had one, at least one kind of Breathe and then cry. Cry. If you yeah. cry a little, yeah, yeah. something so, you don't want me to sing. But, but it was yeah, the, it was that whole. It was that whole thing of like they had a very. They always had big sweep. She it's always a big had sweeping big sweeping ballad, which really worked because this was the age of like one of the biggest songs of '97 into '98. Oh, my heart will go on. Yes. So you had the Celine Dion with the big sweeping ballad. It was just so it was like the, the pop crossover for a lot of them was these non-country sounding. Songs. I will tell you, my guilty pleasure favorite Celine song is the Meatloaf esque. Um, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> It's written by Jim Steinman. Yeah, yeah. so it's just, I, I really appreciate, like, if you laid that over, um, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably pretty much the same song. In a good way, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. Jim well, Steinman I'm knows so, how to write a really epic said, song. Yeah. It's in guilt, oh, yeah. the pleasure oh, yeah. is in, yeah. in guilty pleasure, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, and I wrote down Tony Braxton because Unbreak My Heart oh, God. came out around yes. this time. She had that huge Streisand-esque video. With yes, <laughs> that was a great. Yeah, the guy. Yeah, Ty, was it Tyson Beckford that fell off the bike? Yes, Tyson. Oh, poor Tyson. Speaking of people falling off bikes, <laughs> I know what you're gonna say next. Puff Daddy and the Family <laughs> releases an album. So this is so. So Biggie dies in '96. Tupac died first, and I think Biggie died shortly after. I'm trying to remember what order this happened. I think it was Tupac first, then and then Biggie. Biggie. Because didn't Tupac die the same summer Princess Diana died? No, was... she died in 97. I think Tupac died in 96. Okay. Because Biggie died afterward, and 97 was when I'll Be Missing You yes. was on the radio all uh -huh. the time. I know you're still living your life after death. Biggie died right around the time um, Life After Death, yeah. which you have, I do. Um, came out. But yeah, Puffy and the Family like release um, No Way Out. Was that the name of the CD? I, I, I think he's got one called No Way Out, but yeah. I don't remember which one was the one with him falling off the yeah. motorcycle. And that, that was the one that had I'll Be Missing You, and it had like a couple of the songs where like J-Lo was in a couple of the videos for well, they were some dating of these because they were yes. together then. And like, well, and he per he was one of the producers of On The Six. Yes. Which is her first album. Which is still a good album. Yeah. Very good album. I mean, yeah. Um, Waiting For Tonight was 90, not, I think that was 99. I think we actually talked about it in 99 because I think I, I used part of it. But this is around the time where Puffy was sampling this, like, Oh yeah, everything. Yeah, he sampled Cashmere for that Godzilla movie oh, yeah. song. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it was terrible. Well, all, I mean, the whole thing was a bad idea. The song, the movie, yeah, all of it. Some, yeah, some of these, uh, some of the stuff off of like "More Money, More Problems" has aged pretty well. Oh yeah, as a song, but some and of the other stuff has has and just if that, very. If that plays in the club, everybody is going to stop and mm -hmm. do Biggie's part. Like everybody's gonna go B I G P O P P A. Yeah, yeah. like B I G P O P P A. No info for the D E A. Federal agents mad cause I'm flagrant. Tap myself and the phone in the basement. My team supreme, stay clean. Triple beam, miracle dream. I'll be that. Catch a seat at all events. Bent. Jackson holsters. Everybody is gonna do that. But some of these songs, I don't know, like how. I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest arbiter of, of hip hop taste and stuff. I don't know if like stuff, the stuff from 20 years ago, has aged as well as. And I think at one point we compared like I just remember, I don't remember. We might have been in college and kind of compared like what Puffy was doing and stuff to hair metal because it was getting so big in terms of just the over budgeted videos and everything. Every video was just like the same. Right. The same, it was like there were a couple of hip hop videos in the late 90s that basically were the hip hop version of the girls, girls, girls video from Oh, the yeah, movie. everybody's in the strip you club. You know, strip club it or, they're, or they're on a boat somewhere yeah, or boat, something. Yeah, on a yacht. You know, yeah. which Chris Rock brilliantly yeah. parodied in that one video where he was going on about how they sing about their labels. He's like, you know, the Jacksons didn't sing about Epic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of my favorite lines. Well, I mean, basically, that whole 
song and video is a is a parody of that. And then you have mm -hmm. that Great Roots video oh. with, that's got like <laughs> yes. all like the Chirons yeah. that are popping up, like token white girl the, or whatever. The no labels in the shot shot. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Yeah, some of the it was just it was just a weird era, but you know, like again, it got glossier. The, yeah. the further, like you start out with, you know, Dre and Snoop doing nothing but a G, G thing, and you feel like you're kind of like peeping into this day to day mm -hmm. existence, and then you fast forward ten years, you know, I don't know, even six years maybe, and like you've got. Everybody in like matching track suits, put your rollies in the air, yeah. wave a size. Like, so it's um, everybody in the club, pop a bottles, you know. So it, it all kind of moves in that direction. Yeah. I'd say the only difference, which isn't with which, you know, when you think of directors, you think of Hype Williams as the one who. Yes, who, Hype Williams. But Hype also had a great partnership with Missy, mm -hmm. and like her videos were always like purposely like avant-garde like mm -hmm. wackadoo if on purpose and she was the she was one of the the rap artists doing something really different yeah well you mentioned buster rhymes as well so buster oh, rhymes yeah. videos were also i think high williams did a few of his he, too. i think he did almost all of them yeah and and they were just you know yeah. they were also videos that like you know that was important because mtv like you work trying to cut through off a you were kind of cutting through all the crap, or like the yeah. same thing over and over and over you again. You needed something catchy, and it would make you—it would make you stop. Like that video for Super Duper Fly, yes, where she's got the big garbage bag yeah. on everything. Like you would stop and watch that video, even if you'd seen it like a million times. Well, even to this day, when you watch her performance when she was given the video Vanguard Award, that performance was amazing. She, and it's she's—I mean, it's just she's got just that irreverence and just a li like little things where you're like holy shit who where is this coming from and it's all it, her i mean apparently katie perry was the person was, was it katie perry who she like basically completely upstaged oh yeah at the super bowl it, it should have been her at the super bowl it, yeah, it, like, katie perry was basically her opening act yeah i don't think yeah. katie perry being the more you know rainbow yeah. just give me missy <laughs> yeah i didn't need any of her so i'm just kind of like going down i'm looking at rock and you had um Prodigy was out around this time. Oh she had God. that big electronica thing. I love um, Prodigy. Prodigy. Even though I heard that, I think um, the lead singer was like cuckoo bananas. Yeah, he actually died. Over a did he? Yeah, uh, I think it was a few years you ago. Know what, you're still right. teaching him in he, he did. He did. Um, I can't. But I can't remember like what his name was. But, yeah. and then you have like you have groups like. On the, on the kind of punk tip, you have the rise of like Blink One Eighty Two, and the Offspring are still going pretty strong. But they go from this. Smash was the album that came out. We were still in high school because that's the one that had like self esteem and, and like keep it separated. Yeah, keep it separated. But then you get to like ninety seven, ninety eight, and I don't remember the name of the. I don't remember the name of the album. It was the one that had like you know why don't you get a job, which was basically. If you listen to it, and I pr they probably did it deliberately, deliberately, it's Obladi Oblada by the Beatles. And then the Pretty Fly for a White Guy. Yeah. So they're becoming this like, it was almost like they were a novelty act. Yeah. At that point, and releasing these songs in the same way that, like, you know, Blink 182 almost became like this weird comedy act with some of the videos and stuff. And you're just kind of like, why am I, you know, like all the small things, like, was kind of a funny video, but then you're just like, after a while, it's just like, you know, 
But have you, did you see the article that came out this week where the Navy had to confirm that like these UFOs that Tom DeLonge had said were in these videos were actually truly, they are unidentified. They no, don't know what they are. Out. Oh my God. <laughs> Just Google Tom DeLonge, UFO, Navy, whatever. Like there was this article, cause like we all know he's lost his goddamn mind. Oh yeah. And so he's been talking about like UFOs and he has like the YouTube channel where he does all these conspiracy theory videos yeah. and he had gotten a hold of like some like, I guess I'm gonna say reconnaissance, but that's not the 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 word I mean. I'm just blanking. Mm-hmm. This video footage of like these navy guys, like they can't tell what this thing is. That's it's at night, so uh-huh. you really can't tell. And it's like it's not a drone, it's not a plane, it's not. And the two navy dudes are talking to each other, like I don't know what this is. What is it? Oh my god! And Tom DeLong like puts it on his thing and is like, see, UFOs exist, blah, blah, blah. and everyone's like, shut up, you cuckoo asshole, and then the Navy's like, no, actually, we don't know what it is, <laughs> so, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> so, and then, <laughs> so a broken clock is right twice a day. And then there was that whole Scott moment in, uh, don't you shake your head, <laughs> like, you didn't make me a whole fucking mixtape of, of Mighty Mighty Boston, yeah, and uh, Real no, Big Fish, Real Big Fish, yeah. this is, that's, yeah. don't laugh like you didn't do it. Because you did, I still have it. I know. So It's probably in my car. But I love the Boston's. The Boston's were around for a while. Yeah, the Boston's have... And then you had Sublime, Mm -hmm. which didn't really become famous until he had already died. Yeah, because they they peaked like about a year before this, about 96, I think was when... Yeah, maybe yeah, 96, that, that, seven. What I got and, and Century, like all that I stuff was like 96 into 97. Yeah, that was like second year, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and 311 well, had and 311. some sky, sky yes. influence. There was some 311 had some good stuff. The, the impression that I get is still. That's not some reggae, t- like reggae type of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The impression that I get was the big Boss Tones breakthrough song, and that's a pretty good song. Boston song, Real Big Fish, that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> I do have a Save Ferris CD somewhere, and there are a couple of decent songs. They had that cover of Come On Eileen, mm-hmm. and are notable because they're in the movie 10 Things I Hate About You as the prom band, along with Ben Wyatt's favorite band is in that as well. Oh, <laughs> It's interesting because you don't get, you kind of get that now because rock in itself has become like so just kind of diversified in terms of like you can just kind of go look up anything and like, you know, find it, especially music in general. Like it's so niche with where you can look up and you really could totally ignore pop charts and, and find stuff and, you know, and, and right. so you had like this wave of bands in the late 90s that were you know at that were these post grunge bands because that were a little, little lighter and in some cases a little more mid tempo like like better than Ezra yeah. and Gin Blossoms which kind of started oh, it and I then, love better than Ezra yeah I love better than right. no I'm not I'm not coming out of these bands these are these no, are I, know. I, to, I just in my you know, mind I'm just like I haven't better heard than them Ezra in a while. had like you know yeah had some like a couple of really really good albums and you have like you know Marcy Playground I can't think of anything beyond like Sex and Candy <laughs> And yeah, but <laughs> but fastball was a good band, but it still is still is putting things out. 
Well, and the band that I think of too around that time, and I don't know what year this came out, but Ben Folds Five. Yeah, Ben Folds Five and came so around this time too. Yeah. You again, like yeah. you had like a lot of these bands coming out with like a, you don't even know really what because alternative is meaningless yeah. as a label. It's just kind of like rock pop that's like right. really just well. Then you had garbage. Solid. You had garbage. You had and the Foo Fighters were still were, were, were coming out with like you know their, yeah. their second album. That was a that was a little harder because of Dave Grohl. Dave was that Wolf. the color in the shape? Was that the, the color in the one? shape was about yeah. Yeah, that, Well, but that had Everlong on it, which it is Everlong, uh, yeah. probably their most mainstream yes. song. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the Goo Goo Dolls went from the Goo Goo oh, Dolls God. are odd because the Goo Goo Dolls were kind of like very. They were very hard, much like a little college little, band. It was a college punk band. Like they they opened for the Replacements on the Replacements last tour, and uh -huh. so that they you could hear the influence in their early stuff, and and a boy named Goo. Is a great album. That was '95. You know, name was the but name's the one song in on that album is not like the rest of the album. But I know our mutual friend Liz loves some of the songs on the, the follow up. My sister had that album. But if I heard Iris one more time oh, on the radio, yeah. I was gonna. It wasn't great. Oh my god, that song got overplayed like crazy. Yeah. Oh, and then you had like so Matchbox good. Twenty. Mm -hmm. Like you had a lot of these. You know, you're right. Like mid tempo yeah. bands, which I think. For me, I think that's why I, I don't know, from much like I feel I get overstimulated when I just hear people talking and talking and talking and mm -hmm. it really drives me crazy. I feel like mid-tempo songs make me want to like shove something in my ear because it's not fast enough and it's not a ballad. Mm. So I'm just like, look, get, go faster or slow down yeah. all the way. You're driving me nuts. I'm not a good mid-tempo person. I can't regulate. So, so I'm, looking, I'm, looking at my, I'm looking at my list here so we can kind of go through a few other bands and stuff um because there were there were bands that were kind of like one-off or two-off bands like savage garden you know yeah which had truly madly deeply is a truly really madly lovely deeply. song they cover, did they cover blue monday or was no, it somebody else that was somebody was, else but yeah. i don't remember who um but like sixpence none the richer had that kiss me i hate song. that song yeah so and they covered that laws song yeah uh, there, there she, she goes, goes. Jewel was still kicking around. Eventually, came out with her follow up to. When did the Batman soundtrack come out? I, I, that was ninety. Batman and Robin was ninety eight. Like, also, don't at me. I know why I've asked this question on the show before, yeah. but I can never remember what it was. But she had Foolish Games, which had yeah. she redid it. It's Paula Cole. I don't know what ever happened to Paula Cole. Sean Cole was one of those. One of those. Um, like, has that long running kind of like one of those Indigo Girls type of acts. That, like, has the long running. Career of having the she's the one who who sang Sunny Came Home. You know what's hilarious? Mm. It, again, it just shows my ADD and I don't pay attention. Yeah. I, it's like one day I was just listening to it and I heard it nonstop, yeah. like especially on like Big One or Seven Point Three. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, hold up, she burned her damn house down. Mm -hmm. She burned down her she shed. It's, it's like a, I it's just a very goodbye Earl type of song. Yeah, you know? and I was like, <laughs> holy shit, that is savage. Like I just, it took I was, yeah. I, it just one day I was like, oh. And then Meredith Brooks. Puts out "Bitch," which was just another song that just so. And we, and this is something I wanted to point out. We watched and MTV was obviously playing a lot of hip hop. We watched so much VH1 in the late nineties right. and into the two thousands because they had pop up video. They were, had pop up video, but they also had like you know they had a lot of these these videos and stuff in the top twenty countdown. So mm -hmm. when you were looking, because especially as we got into later in college, into the ninety eight ninety nine, when all they were playing were TRL stuff and. Rural World and Road Rules reruns. VH1 was actually playing music, the music and yeah. the videos, and they they were also they also were doing the rock and roll picture shows. So I think 
I lost count of the number of times you and I watched either the entirety or bits and pieces of Fame on VH1 <gasps> yes. because VH1 used to run Fame as much as many times as Comedy Central would run PCU yes. on a random afternoon. <laughs> I love Fame. Come for the song, stay for the like ten second yeah. cameo by Isaac Mizrahi yeah. <laughs> in the very beginning. Fame and Greece. They used to run Greece a lot and Rocky Horror. Yes, but then you have um, Lusus Jackson, yeah. which had a great. Fever and Naked Fever Eye. Out is such an amazing album, yeah. Naked Eye. But the, the second fin album they did, Ladyfingers was like the first single off of it, and I've never heard any of the other songs off of it, but I remember the video was like, somebody in marketing wanted to soften their image, so they put them all in like, you know, Laura Ashley Prince or something. It's, 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 it's a very like odd thing from a band that had that really cool almost mod-looking video for um, Naked Eye. Because it was in the skating room. No, they were spies. Yeah, they were spies. It was. it was just, it's such a great, great album. And knowing that they were... Um, Weren't they found? Didn't they get they, discovered by the, the Beastie, Beastie Boys? Boys? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. They, because but yeah, you're right. They were, you know, so... But then, but then we've got... <laughs> we have songs by um, Diane Warren, who just... What know, a scourge. That, <laughs> I really, really don't want to mention that Aerosmith song because it'll get stuck in your head. That, that song is so long. <laughs> it is so long and the movie is so bad and it makes you hate everyone in it but like speaking of songs that need stuck in your head and just to go back to boy bands for a minute I remember the only NSYNC song I ever actually knew in college was I Drive Myself Crazy mm -hmm. because I heard it right before I had to take my accounting final mm -hmm. and it, it just ran on a loop in my head. Like the whole time I'm taking this accounting final, I left my calculator and in my apartment. So all I had was like this little pocket calculator, like truly with like plus minus division and like multiplication and that's probably it. And maybe like some numbers, I don't know. But like I'm sitting there trying to take an accounting final with like this janky ass calendar and like in sync running through <laughs> my head. So thanks Justin Timberlake, thanks a lot. So there's two more acts that I want to talk about, and then um, and then we'll wrap it up uh, just with, with a couple of things. First, uh, the Bare Naked Ladies. Mm -hmm. It's been one week since you looked at me. Cut your head to the side and said I'm angry. Five days since you laughed at me. You're saying get back together, come back and see me. Three days since the living room. I realized I saw my fault but couldn't tell you. Yesterday you'd forgiven me. But it'll still be two days till I say I'm sorry. Hold it now I want to hoodwink. Does it make you stop think? You'll think you're looking at Aquaman. I summon fish to the dish, although I like Stunt comes out in 90, the summer of 98. I had first heard of them in 96 because the old apartment used to get played mm -hmm. on WHFS. Yeah. And I had that. I, I, I got that album. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, you hear that a lot. Brian Wilson was getting some play as well. Yeah. Like, you know, they were starting to dig back into this band's catalog because this, this song was kind of flying under the radar. And then one week hit. So <laughs> one week was like huge. I don't know if it hit number one, but it was just. Was that the very huge. first McG video? That was, I don't know if it was the very first McGee video, it was, the, it was their first McGee video. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. It was, it was around the time McGee was also like, so there was Hype Williams, McGee, um, Wayne Isham, trying to think of the other people who like, you know, who were that wave of late, or mid to late 90s um, um, music video directors. Oh, um, he did, he directed one of the Hunger Games movies. He did the Brian. Uh, remember um, Brian? The one, you're like a dream come true. Yeah. Too. What's his name? I can't um, remember. But that video. He and he did. Um, he did a Beyonce. He did. A, I said I was gonna say Beyonce, but it's Destiny's Child. He's a Destiny's Child video. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Know. I can't remember what it his name is. Not, yeah, I don't remember because like there were other there were other video uh, directors who were 
still hanging around. Like I think Mark Romanek was still making yeah. videos. And, and well, he did he make Scream with Michael and Janet? Was yes. that Mark Romanek? I think that was Mark Romanek. I just remember yeah. Mark Romanek doing that weird look at Madonna video and um, uh, oh yeah, he Closer. Did. Didn't he do Closer Nine Inch Nails? I thought that was David. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I was going to say David Fincher, but I'm pretty yeah, sure it's Mark yeah, Romanek. Fincher, by that point, was making... Um, seven. Seven. And because Fincher's first movie was Alien 3, and that was 92. So Fincher, I think, had stopped making uh, music videos by then. Nigel Dick was another video. But Nigel Dick was directing, like, two for Fears videos back in 1984. So this, But he also did a couple gar garbage videos. Yeah, like, yeah. He was already did Stupid Girl. He was girl. one of those kind of, like, journeyman workman people... Francis Lawrence. Um, Francis, Francis Lawrence. Lawrence. Okay. That's the guy who did it. Oh my God, yeah. he's been so, But yeah, so the Bare Naked Ladies just, and, and so Stunt Maroon, I mean like that whole arrow of, yeah. of again, just, that's a fun... I listen to Stunt a lot too. I, yeah, yeah. And, and I am, every once in a while I'll bust some of that stuff out on my iPod because it, is, it still holds up really, really well. And then of course you have Madonna because Madonna, Madonna really didn't go away. No. But Madonna had She's reinvented of, herself a couple of times. Ray of Light. album mm -hmm. and then you had ray of light which was her electronica album is that william orbit yes who produced most of that yeah ray of light was like the, the i think the biggest song off of that album but yeah. frozen was the first one it was nothing really matters yes is when she decided one. to be asian yeah <laughs> what the fuck are you doing madonna <sighs> you know her scarlett johansson <laughs> <laughs> In the remake, in, in the, the reboot remake. of this yeah, video. Of this video. <laughs> Her part would be played by Scarlett. And um, Gwen Stefani's kind of guilty of that on oh, some God. Yeah, well. I mean, at least Madonna didn't walk around with like four Japanese women yeah. like they were her pets. Yeah, but then you have. Gross. But, um, but you a, did have No Doubt. I mean, No Doubt no was. Doubt. You know, you had Tragic Kingdom and The Return of Saturn, Saturn, which actually is a really great yeah. album. Don't Speak came out, or Don't Speak was released as a single sometime in like late 96, early 97. And that was the song that they never got tired of playing that on like Mix of 107. Because it was a ballad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and I have to mention Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry. Oh, of course. Because we have we have a station around here called 1061 The Corner and their motto is different is good. And they'll do their station break. It's like 1061 The Corner, different is good. And the probability that that song will get played or it actually it's it's like I, if i sat down and listened to it and i and i checked off the number of times after that they played a song that was like 10 to 20 years old and had been played out it actually is probably it's i don't know if they're being ironic or if it's just like sheer coincidence but i've heard it like where all of a sudden it's like you know save tonight comes on and i'm like really this song it's like it's the jack and diane of the 90s that's so funny to me because like i never hear it on you I've watch i'm gonna get several the car times, on monday yeah. to go to work and hear it yeah, so we talk about Madonna and the Bare Naked Ladies and stuff, but um, the, one of the things that, that I wanted to mention, too, is this is a right around the time, too, where the 80s revival, like, goes into even 
you know, kind of a higher gear. I mean, it, it started, it kind of started a couple years earlier, but 90, 97 and 98 are when Romy Michelle, Gross Point Blank, and The Wedding Singer all come out. And those have soundtracks that are so 80s heavy. Mm -hmm. And this became like right around the time that like pop up video was playing. So pop up video used to just play old 80s videos. Mm -hmm. Who predicted Tracy Chapman would marry her guitar? Why was Thomas Dolby sued for his name? How many times has Billy Joel appeared before a real judge? The whole 80s revival was like, you know, it was like well, so I mean, huge. We're firmly in the, like, in the 90s revival now. Have yeah, you seen the clothes? I know. You talk about Laura revival. Ashley, like tiny floral prints are back and I want to die. <laughs> like, I don't like it. I didn't like it before. I don't like it now. I don't want to dress like Holly Hobby. I'm a grown ass woman. I was cracking up the other day because Jennifer Garner on her Instagram was putting or playing with the Friends Central the Park. Legos. But did you notice she was wearing a... Spaghetti strap dress with a t-shirt underneath the shirt. Yeah, underneath. I'm telling like you, the, it was 90s the 90s. And I, I thought she had done that on purpose because probably because that's what Rachel used to wear. Yeah, a lot. yeah, she, she was. I have a pair of giant wide leg, charcoal gray J Crew pants from 1999, mm. and now they are in fashion again. And you bet your sweet ass, I'm going to wear them this winter as soon as my mom hems the that fell out. I do think I finally gave my last roll neck sweater to Goodwill because it had just been stretched out to the point where it was getting unwearable. That's probably good. But I, you know, I held on to those roll neck sweaters for yeah. quite a long time. They're warm. Yeah, it was back when J. Crew wasn't like completely bonkers and made clothes that you know normal people could wear. Yeah, they kind of lost the plot there for a while. Jenna Lyons did not help things. But yeah, but we started listening to so much 80s. I remember at one point or another from like the middle the midpoint of like junior year all the way to senior college making like just for my car because I had a cassette player in my car and not a CD player 80s mixtapes yeah of just and just listening to like all that stuff and that was and the wedding singer was a big part of that or that giant and I don't know if this went around at Loyola but we'd get that email forward of like a hundred oh, lyri yeah. lyrics, lyrics and you'd have to figure like out what quiz. song yeah, it was yeah yeah, yeah yeah we got that too because I remember and I remember um or like you know you're from the 80s if you know yeah. like those forwards and stuff yeah. god I'm sure I mean I'm sure people still forward things around, um, but you know. Well, was, I mean, old people gotta do something. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But anyway, so that's just like I said. I mean, I just wanted to do a very quick look at '97 and '98 as part of a cap on this whole episode, where I've gone back and looked at old, you know, old clips or outtakes and stuff, and put stuff in. And I thought it would be like kind of a nice capper. And uh, so, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. I wish that I that I could stay. It wasn't so Same tonight If I could break up dawn Come tomorrow Tomorrow I'll be gone Same tonight If I could break up dawn Come tomorrow Tomorrow I'll be gone Same tonight If I could break up dawn Come
And with that, I'm going to take one more break. When I get back, I'm going to have four blog comments on the random stuff I've posted over the years. Stick around. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dex, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the prophets at Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. This is a podcast and blog about everything random in the world of popular culture, and very often that's right. As you saw with the UA Patchog comment, I had done an entire post about an old multiplex, one that I used to go to all the time as a kid. But they get even more random than that. I've done commercials, toys, food, school textbooks. That's right, I did an entire post about textbooks. In 2011, I wrote a post called Put on Your Mystery Sneaker and Give Me a Clue Because It's Time to Ride the Sunrise, which was about reading books that I used in elementary school. This was a series published by Gin or Gin Publishing, G-I-N-N, and from the time I was in first grade until the time I was in fifth grade, I was given these collections, which all had, you know, stories and questions in them, you know, as, as English textbooks tend to do, as part of my reading unit. But the post is also about being in elementary school, especially my first grade teacher, Mrs. Hickman's class, and the post brought back memories for some, including Brian Slade, who mentioned that there was another book I left off the post called Flights of Color, and these remarks from Jason Sattinson. He says, I love your post. I did this program also in Catholic elementary school, and it came to mind the other day, so when I found your post while Googling the phrase mystery sneaker, I think that's the one I remember the most, so I'm not surprised. Anyway, he says, as a detail-oriented kid, which is code word for obsessive, I kept track of all the readers and their titles. I just dug out my listing. I can't believe I still had it, and I knew that I knew where it was. He says, I guess I'm still obsessive. He says, the titles in order are, and this starts all the way from like the pre-K kindergarten level, Animal Crackers, One Potato Two, The Little Dog Laughed, Fish and Not Fish, Inside My Hat, Birds Fly, Bears Don't, Across the Fence, Glad to Meet You. He has questions. Um, he says, my notes say I forgot to record the title before summer break. Mystery Sneaker, Ten Times Around, Barefoot Island, Ride the Sunrise, and Flights of 
colors. I'm not sure which book I read up to. I transferred to public school in the seventh grade, but I remember sneaking into the textbook storage closet in order to get the titles of the final ones in the list. I remember the pictures and the graphics being wonderful and the colors were vibrant, a real luxury in the 80s when we were still using the ditto machines that refused to die. Oh, but you love getting that high, didn't you, man? Anyway, he says the consumable books which accompany each reader were called skill pack and study book, many which I still have. Wow. They were mostly completed with a snack scratch and sniff sticker accompanying an A+. There you go. That's 80s school for you, man. The one he couldn't remember, by the way, or didn't record was called Give Me a Clue. There's also one called Green Salad Seasons. Uh, this cover for Give Me a Clue was a combination of pink and purple with me being puzzle pieces. Green Salad Seasons look like a garden, and the letters of Green Salad Seasons were the plants in the garden. Um, also from my childhood, I blog about are things like toys and musical instruments. Sometimes I've had the chance to post about a random toy that I either saw or had advertised, and someone says, wow, thanks for sharing, you know, those comments. Others are like this, though. This was about the demonstration song on my old Yamaha keyboard. Bethany Hill writes... Thank you so much. That was a good memory of airplaying going along to that. We would play that all the time. My brother and I just devoted to search for that and surprised him that I found it. And just for that, by the way, I'm going to play the demonstration song from the Yamaha PSR27 keyboard. Now, a few years ago, I uncovered saved files of email forwards that went around during my first year of college. They were lists, purity tests, and essays about how much college life has changed, even though it's only been a few weeks since you left home for the first time. One of them was called 50 Things to Do on a Final Exam if You Know You're Not Going to Pass the Class Anyway. And I got this comment back in 2014 from Patty, who said, Holy crap. I thought the 100 Beats to Mess With Your Roommate was funny, but had to comment on this one because I'm in the middle of grading midterm exams. By the way, I proctored a test where the kid did number 47, and this is during the exam, take apart everything around you, desk, chairs, anything you can reach. 
almost as funny as my admitting to everyone in the teacher's room yesterday what I did on my last check-in round to see if my kids had any questions. In the last 10 minutes of the exam, they'd call me over, desperately trying to pull a number 40. That's when you get the exam, call the instructor over, point to any question, ask for the answer, try to work it out of them. I examined the question and said, nope, try again. The reality is I didn't have my glasses on me and couldn't see the damn thing they were pointing at. So, there you go. But finally, the end of this massive feedback section, this massive blog post comments and all these clips, I have my favorite comment thread on my blog. It has to do with a series of 90s Dr. Pepper commercials, early 90s Dr. Pepper commercials, featuring a guy in a white t-shirt and jeans singing about the travails of everyday life and how Dr. Pepper makes everything better and more awesome. We love it. It's just what the doctor ordered. Here's an example. Check this out. I'm sick of dating, you gotta fake it So much madness you just can't take it Hey, don't go through this, I know what feels good While the best thing's always so misunderstood Just give me what the doctor ordered Dr. Pepper! Just what the doctor ordered Just give me a Dr. Pepper, we want it! Whoa, just what the doctor ordered The taste is made to order, we love it! Dr. Pepper! This is an early post. This was from July 14th, 2010. And in it, I do kind of a snarky commentary on the commercials. It has 11 comments, some of which are replies from me, but most of which are from Patty. And I think this is the same Patty who commented on the test thing I was talking about, the the finals exams uh, forward thing I was just talking about. Here's the entire comment thread. So Patty writes in on February 21st, 2014. Don't know how I came upon this block, really, but that guy on the white shirt t-shirt is my brother, Terry Gaddens. I was like, really? Wow, did he do anything else beyond the Dr. Pepper commercials? I only remember seeing him in these. And she says, yeah, he quite a few, but he's a soccer dad in commercials now. In fact, I just saw him in a Toyota commercial where he's teaching his daughter to drive. I got such a kick out of your blog that I just sent him the link. I know he will too. I said, Patty, I'm really happy to hear that. All the best to you and your brother. She replied, by the way, I was at the train station one, and it was in Rye, New York. My biggest throw was seeing Meredith Vieira picking up her friend from the train and the craft service table. I replied, that's so cool. You made my night. Thank you. So fast forward three years later, Tim comments, too funny. It was so interesting to find this article when I searched for Terry's old pepper commercials to show a friend. Terry was my teammate, roommate, and a friend of mine when I was in college. In fact, I just had a great visit with him a few days ago while visiting LA. Great guy, great memories. I said, this is great to hear. This is the second time someone who knows him read the blog post since I posted it, and and I find that really cool. And then Patty replies to Tim that it's Terry's sister. She says, I was surprised to see this thread pop up in my email three years ago. Wow, I had forgotten all about this connection. I'm number three friar in the family. What a small freaking world. Uh, She says, I haven't been out to L.A. in a long time, but I understand that from family members that Terry and his wife are awesome hosts. Sure, you you had a good time. The older I get, the more I love these six degrees of separation. Very cool. Totally random, totally weird, but really cool. And, I mean, it doesn't compare to the random celebrity encounters or comics creators meetups that other friends have had. But for a random post about an obscure set of Dr. Pepper commercials to have this sort of connection with the guy who was in it, I wish he would have responded to. That would have been awesome. But at the same time, his sister, the guy's friend, old college roommate, I really thought that was great. I still think about that. And I wanted to share it with you guys, even though it's been on the site for a long time. 
But that'll do it for Retrospecticus. I want to send one more shout-out out there to Professor Allen. I couldn't find any clips for you because I think we, we tend to stay on topic because we are efficient because that Professor Allen is economic with his podcasting time, and I can appreciate that. I strive to be more economic with mine and my words. I fail miserably. But before I leave, I want to preview my new mini-series. This is going to start on November 9th. Here's the trailer. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So on November 9th, look for the first episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. And while I featured or mentioned a number of people on this episode already, I'd be remiss if I didn't do all of the acknowledgements for the past now 101 episodes. First and foremost are Amanda and Brett, who not only participate and contribute, but don't mind me heading down into the basement every once in a while. Second, Scott Gardner, who graciously invited me to be on the Two True Freaks Network. And to his fellow true freak, Chris Honeywell, who has also been a gracious host and a network boss, so to speak. And third, to all my guests on the show who have been either co-hosts for episodes or are gracious enough to be interviewed for a segment. There are a ton of them going all the way back to episode 15, so this is going to be long, but necessary. First, thank you to all the creators I've met and interviewed at the Baltimore Comic Con, including the people who run the Baltimore Comic Con, who have been giving me a press pass for the last several years. And this includes creators Tom Zoller and Luke Dobb. Thank you also to Ruth and Darren Sutherland of the Rad Adventures Network, Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Network, the Fortress of Bailey Tune Network's Michael Bailey, Sarah D. Bunting from Again With This 90210, The Blotter Presents, and the Extra Hot Great Podcast, among many other things in the television review world, my fellow MSCL listees, Corey, Mark, Andrea, and Shell. My friend and former teaching colleague, Amanda Broyles. Stella, who you can find on Batgirl to Oracle and Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Network. Todd Liebenau from the Forgotten Filmcast. Donovan Morgan Grant of Questions We Don't Have Answers and the Batman Universe. And the following members of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. 
Trentus Magnus of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Andrew Leyland from the Palace of Glittering Delights Listen to the Prophets and Hey Kids Comics. Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destructing Directive and Get Back to the Wrestling. Paul Spataro of Back to the Bins and Listen to the Prophets. And Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes. Looking at all those names, I have to say that it's pretty awesome to have gotten to know that many people and have had the chance to have them contribute to the show, which is something I'm very proud of. Thank you very much, everyone. And with that, I'm going to wrap things up. Episode 102 is going to drop in late October, just in a few weeks, and it will be my annual Baltimore Comic Con episode guest starring Brett and hopefully featuring clips and interviews with creators and other convention guests. Until then, don't forget to rate the show, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, and as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.